That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Whole bunch to unpack on today's show. We're going to talk about it all. Pac-12, are they negotiating? Or are they really thinking about going all in with the streaming service? Whole bunch of hysteria in response to a report out of the New York Post today saying that the Pac-12 conference is considering Apple as a partner. Step back, folks. Stop the hand-wringing. This could just be some public negotiating. We'll talk about that on today's show. Plus, uh, we'll unpack the NBA All-Star Weekend. Thumbs up or thumbs down? Did it pass uh, muster or do you leave it going, this is the worst thing ever? We'll also talk about uh, how pro sports teams should handle wagering sponsorships. And we'll deal a little bit with uh, the topic of the best sports city in America. Las Vegas wants to claim it, but... I have a hard time even discerning who the candidates are if we're talking about who the best sports cities in America might be. Great show today. We'll uh, get a visit from Anna in the middle of the show, but I want to start by talking about uh, a column I wrote over the weekend about a, I want to call him a legendary high school coach because, um, you know, Scott Keller, the coach at Century High School in Hillsboro, you know, he's won 400 games. That, that's not a bad accomplishment, which means you've been around for a while, 25-plus years at the same school. And I had somebody over the weekend tell me, like, who does that anymore? And uh, years ago, years and years and years ago, I was covering USC and Texas playing for the national championship in college football. And I uh, boarded the plane and was headed home, and I happened to sit by Scott Keller on that plane ride. And we talked a lot about coaching. We talked about my job. We talked about working with kids over the years. I have so much respect for coaches, uh, particularly middle school and high school coaches, who are doing the job for pennies on the dollar, really. And, you know, they're working for 12 cents an hour, uh, coaching kids and mentoring kids and being good leaders and teaching uh, values like, you know, believe in something larger than yourself and play for each other. These are the kinds of things that uh, coaches like Scott Keller preach. Uh, Last May, some of you may know that doctors found cancer on one of Scott Keller's kidneys. They removed the organ. A few months later, the cancer came back, came back as a growth on his lung. Uh, Renal cell carcinoma is the diagnosis that he has, which requires chemotherapy. He's in a clinical trial. He's had a pile of emergency room visits. His uh, temperature is soared at different times. He's had infections and reactions to the chemotherapy, and he's had MRIs and had overnight stays in the hospital. Anybody who's ever been around, anybody who has suffered with a cancer diagnosis and chemotherapy knows 
that it's not easy. It takes a toll. It knocks you out. And, in fact, uh, I got a text from a high school baseball teammate of mine who uh, informed me that our baseball coach in our high school coach, who was uh, wildly successful in the wins and loss column and, and a great person to boot, also is battling cancer. And he said, you might want to reach out to him. And it was, you know, just during the weekend, I'd just written about Scott Keller at johnconzano.com. If you want to read the full full column on him and the magic of, uh, you know, the, the career that he has had and continues to have in coaching kids and how many people are rooting for him and in his corner. Uh, I thought about my own high school coach, and I reached out to my coach with a text message uh, yesterday and said, hey, I, I heard that, you know, you might be having a hard time. And he came back with the cancer's back. And and he said he's dealing with fatigue and chemotherapy and all that stuff. And anybody who's ever been around that again understands how difficult that can be on the individual as, um, you know, the drugs and the treatments that are used to uh, combat the cancer often are uh, just as bad with the side effects and as the cancer itself or in a lot of cases close to it. Um, Scott's brother Bill reached out to me a few weeks ago and said, hey, I want to tell you about my brother, the coach that keeps showing up for his team. And it's essentially, like, this is a guy who, despite going through chemotherapy and the clinical trial and having the surgery to remove his kidney, and, you know, has continued to try to coach his team to the point where he's been in the hospital dealing with the cancer treatments and leaves the hospital and his wife Katrina will drive him over to the gym and he'll slip through a back door of the locker room and he'll deliver the pregame speech for his team while they're getting ready to play a game. And I got the audio and video of one of those pregame speeches. And in that speech... He's telling his players, basically, don't sweat the small stuff. Forget about playing time. Forget about officiating. Forget about all the little things that you think matter that really don't. And only somebody with this kind of diagnosis can have that perspective, right? Like, often, like, we had the, we had a, uh, a guy named Jeff Jacobs, who was a sports columnist at the Hartford Courant newspaper, on this show one time, because... Not because of anything he wrote in the sports world, but because he wrote a column about having a heart attack. And longtime listeners of the show may remember him coming on the program to talk about having a heart attack and being on the floor of his kitchen on the linoleum, clutching his chest while his wife is dialing 911, and thinking, you know, about all the things that matter to him. And he wasn't thinking about oh, I need to write another column, or I need to see a game, or, hey, I need to go watch UConn play again, or I need to call Jim Calhoun and get a uh, get a tweet out about a recruit. You know, it wasn't had nothing to do with work. He was lying there on the floor lamenting that he had prioritized so many things that were not important, and it's the same conversation that you and I would be having with ourselves if we were lying on the kitchen floor, you know, dealing with the possibility that we weren't going to make it. And... You know, it's interesting to me, it's always interesting to me to get the perspective of people who are either in an accident or dealing with an illness that is, uh, or a disease, or, you know, it, it, such as cancer, where, you know, all the small stuff, all the things you think are important suddenly become less important. And instead, you start focusing on how lucky you were to what? To be a dad, 
to be a, a husband, to coach your kids' teams, to spend time with your kids, and you start to think about all those things that you wish you could do more, and nobody's sitting there on their deathbed or in their final moments or dealing with a terminal illness or dealing with the, uh, a diagnosis of cancer, that nobody's sitting there going, oh, I wish I would have worked one more day. I mean, that has been a long-standing theme on this show, and I've talked about it all the time, like, you know, hey, we got to have perspective because everybody, like a lot of teams, a lot of people, a lot of sports programming on television and radio, uh, writers, people on Twitter, they just lose perspective. Like, they have no perspective, no tether to reality, and everything feels like life or death that, you know, that should not feel like life or death. And so in that message that Coach Keller gave his team in that locker room, he basically, his voice is cracking. You could tell, you know, he's crying. His eyes are glassy at least. And he's asking his players, can you play for each other today? Will you play for each other? Will you put all that stuff aside and will you, you know, everybody always talks about being a team. Will you play for each other? Then his team went out and played together. It was a gift. That's coaching. That's teaching. That's so much bigger than, you know, the kind of coaches that roll out the ball and recruit players from other districts, bring them in, suit them up, and try to win a game on talent alone. So much better. So much more rich. So much more valuable. And, you know, people say high school basketball, the high school basketball programs, they're not as, they're not as meaningful as they used to be. Club coaches have seized control of the system. It's true. And it might be true in some places. But Scott Keller on that campus in Hillsborough for the last 25 years has put together a body of work that is incredibly meaningful. And he's still doing it, even while sick. And, you know, I we've talked to coaches on this show in the last week. I, you know, on Friday's show we did, a, you know, an interview with Lake Oswego's Marshall Cho. We talked about perspective and kind of the role of the high school coach and all that stuff. But this really, to me, quantifies it. And I, it left me thinking about my own high school coaches, the, the people who had an impact on me, even my dad coaching my little league teams and other dads volunteering to coach the little league teams. That stuff matters. It matters in the end. It matters more than the wins and losses. It matters more than the teams you root for. It frankly matters in a way that a lot of us – probably don't think about until you have a diagnosis or you know somebody who's been diagnosed. But a really cool story has spun out of this this uh, you know tragedy, so to speak, that Scott Keller is enduring. He's trying to beat cancer. They've set up a GoFundMe for him. You can read my column. You can link to all that stuff. But Marcus Harvey, the founder of Portland Gear, happened to be a student at Century High School in 2008. It was weird to me because... I was already planning to write about Scott Keller when I saw that Marcus Harvey had created a special T-shirt on Portland Gear's website for Keller's crew. And it turns out that Harvey went to high school there, and he used to run the student store on campus. It was his senior project. So he went out, and he designed a T-shirt that was supposed to be sold to students to support the basketball team, Keller's crew T-shirts, and, uh, you know, Marcus Harvey, in his very first T-shirt design, ordered 36 T-shirts and made them available to be sold in the student store, $10 a piece. Over the course of that senior year, 
Students and parents bought the shirts. Harvey kept ordering them. By the end of the season on senior night, the entire gym was filled with fans who were wearing those T-shirts. Now, if you went to that high school, I'm telling you stuff you know already. Century High School's got a community. Like a lot of high schools in our area, there's a real, true sense of community. Like, community, to me, it's not just the buildings. It's not the houses in a neighborhood. It's not the school. It's not the library. It's not City Hall. It's not a fire station. Community's the people. It's, in that way, it's a lot like a church. You know, the church, what is the church? It's the people. It's not the building. So, in this sense, you've got Marcus Harvey, who told me on Sunday morning that that T-shirt design that he made as a senior in high school planted the seed for what eventually became Portland Gear. He would go off to college at Oregon. He would found Portland Gear. And now he prints tens of thousands of shirts. He's got this wildly popular brand, huge asset to our region, creates uh, jobs for people, creates uh, you know, revenue. Uh, he, he's big into charity and nonprofits in the community. And while we're at it, every time I see Portland Gear now, I'm going to give a little assist to that old basketball coach, Scott Keller. Played a little role in that, didn't he? So this week, Portland Gear now has started selling a special Keller's Crew T-shirt that is a throwback to the T-shirt that Marcus Harvey originally designed. All the profit from the sales of the shirt will be donated to the GoFundMe that uh, Scott Keller uh, will benefit Scott Keller and his family as they uh, not only endure cancer, but they endure the financial hit that comes with being diagnosed. But, you know, in a world where you have an NBA All-Star weekend, that is rampant with selfishness. Like, let's be real. That NBA All-Star game was exhibit A in sports selfishness. And I am, I'm not even talking about load, load management. I'm just talking about the me, me, me of what we saw on display in Salt Lake City. Um, a lot of selfishness. Now, a lot of players in it for themselves. A lot of coaches may be a little bit in it for themselves, too. But amid all that, I'm giving you, you know, a, a high school coach in Hillsborough at Century High School who got a bad break. He's got cancer. He's dealing with it. But that whole community has pulled together around him, and it's, it's just inspiring to see. And it made me think about my own high school coach who's battling cancer. And maybe it'll make you think a little bit, too, about the coaches who played a role in your life. And maybe it's a good time on this commercial break to send a text to that little league coach or that high school coach or that person who, you know, gave you so much of their time at 12 cents an hour back in the day. And I really struggled with words. Like, I'm a word person, right? But I struggled with words as I was texting my high school coach. Like, what could I tell him that would lift him up, that would make him smile? that would make him feel a little bit better about everything that's going on, that take his mind off his diagnosis, the fact that he's fatigued, he's undergoing chemo, the same stuff Scott Keller is enduring. And all I could come up with was, you know, I told him, I said, hey, you know, I told my wife what a great coach you are. I was explaining to her how much fun we had and how much growth we had playing for you. And, you know, the exchange back and forth, it, it, it told me a lot about what that meant to him because I think we should all do that. Like in this commercial break, if you get a chance, shoot a text to that coach, that teacher, that person who invested in you. Don't wait until they have cancer to do it is what I'm saying. 
Why does the Pac-12 bring out the nuttiness in people on social media and in other places? We'll talk about it next. Plus, Alabama's getting it all wrong. And you know what I'm talking about. Leave it here. You got the BFT statewide. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. Oh, we'll get to that terrible All-Star game. Worst game ever. <laughs> we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, I was talking about coaches and people who mattered in your life. Uh, who came to mind? I hope you shot a text to him, or you will tonight, uh, when you get a chance to that person who was the coach in your life. Um, Stephen, who'd you think about when I was talking about that? Yeah, so I thought of uh, one of my best friends. His dad coached us when I was in 7th, 8th, and ninth grade for basketball. And it was a weird time because I had played in a different league. Like, uh, I was playing for Clackamas, and I moved over to, like, Putnam area uh, to play for them. So it was a brand-new team, brand-new players to play around. Didn't know anybody. Um, and, you know, I was obviously pretty good at that age, but I just didn't have the confidence in myself, like, to know that I was really good. And, uh, you know, he taught me some things that – I just will never forget, like, as a person on and off the court. But, like, he told me to always think that I'm the best player and always have confidence in myself to do whatever I want. And I've taken that to whatever I've done. You know, I know that I have to improve a lot of things, but I have to act like I know what I'm doing. And I have to be confident in myself, and I've always taken that uh, to heart. And, you know, he calls in sometimes to this program, and he still talks to me. Like, I still talk to him. I'll give him rides to the airport sometimes. Uh, you know, because he is, you know, not only is he one of my better friend's dad, like, He's just one of those guys that's just a great coach. You know, it wasn't necessarily X's and O's stuff. It was all just like mental with me. And uh, I really took that to heart my whole life. So, uh, yeah, for him, like, I always uh, think about him when I think of like the best coaches I ever played for. Yeah, it's funny because when I think about parenting, often like as a parent, I will see like a pivotal, like a big moment or big opportunity for myself that presents itself to be be a good parent in this moment. But then when I look back and I think about, what good parenting is or what, you know, when I look at my parents and the job they did with me, it's a series of little things that you don't really, there's not, it's not big moments. It's not, you know, championship game stuff. It's the little things. And, you know, just knowing that you're supported in the way that they help build confidence in kids. And I think a lot of that with coaching and parenting is rooted in uh, fostering confidence in young people. And so for the uh, coaches out there, I often talk about teachers. I think coaching is teaching. Uh, I just want to give a shout-out to them as uh, we, were thought, we were thinking about and talking about Scott Keller, the coach at Century High School in the opening segment. I wrote the column. If you want to read it, it's at johnconzano.com. I want to pivot a little bit uh, to, uh, you know, the terrible, rotten, no-good NBA All-Star game. Uh, I also want to talk about the Pac-12 conference and why it brings out nuttiness in people. Where do we start? Let's start with the All-Star game. Uh, terrible game. I thought the weekend was a pretty selfish display of uh, why the individual brands have taken over the NBA. It reminded me of bad club basketball. Uh, I, I'm, you know, the best players in the world, great athletes, all of that stuff. It was wonderful to to see people shooting half court shots and stuff. But man, as a game and as an event, it disgusted me. It was pointless. I didn't think it was. Uh, I didn't think it was worth your time or your attention. And I, and I don't feel like I'm an old man shouting at the clouds on my front lawn. I, I just think, like, this 
There's so much wrong with this. And you got Mike Malone, the Nuggets coach, basically saying this was the worst basketball game ever played. Um, what did you think of it? Between the dunk contest and the skills and the three-point shooting and 184-175, Team Giannis over Team LeBron. So here's the thing. Like, I'm not a big all-star guy, I, and I said this before, and I think you're with me, John, that it's not really marketed for us. But after this year, I'm trying to figure out who it actually is marketed to. Like, who is enjoying this product? Because I'm with you. I don't think it's us just being old guys yelling at the clouds. So my, you know, my young or my oldest son, he's eight years old. He's really getting into basketball. He was really excited for All Star Saturday night. So we let him watch it and you know watch all the dunk contests, the three point contests, and he was cool with it. Like he thought it was fun. And then he wanted to watch some of the All Star game. He watched about two minutes and he's like, "This is terrible." Like he couldn't even watch it. And he's eight. Like he just thought it was just so boring of them just going back and forth, just doing little layups and dunks. Like I don't know who they're who they're shooting for for this product. I, you know, I think I, I think I have the answer. Yeah. I, I don't think it's for I don't think it's for us. I think the league has set this like everything in the NBA. It's all about the players. It's all about the players' association. The players' contracts are guaranteed. The uh, everything in this whole league is geared towards the players having control. I think this game is set up to showcase the individual brands of the players in the league, and to me, that's where it falls short. Like the NBA. Star players in the NBA, I don't think they care about the league. I think they care about their own brand and and how many rings they can put on their fingers and how much money they can make. And the All-Star game was on foot. Like, if the, if the whole thing vomited all over the place, it, it would have been the All-Star weekend. I mean, I feel like they should just take away the game. Like, if they just did some of these skills contests, like, it still wouldn't be great, but it would at least be better than just the game. And I also think it's pretty silly, like, because you, you talk about it's about the brand, and that's what it's about. And they had this draft, but they made it so there was try, there tried to be no last pick in the draft. Well, we all know Jaron Jackson Jr. was the last pick. Like, it's okay to be the last pick. Like, you're still an all-star. You still should be, you know, comfortable with yourself that, like, oh, I'm the last pick as an all-star. It shouldn't bother me. I, it just, I'm with you. It just seems like they're they're just losing all direction, and they're they're just making it so, you know, they're on this giant pedestal way above just the normal average, you know, fan. And it, it is pretty it, – it, I don't know if I'd say it's gross like you did, but, like, it's just it, – it's weird. Like, I, I just – I don't like it, and I just don't understand, like, who wants to watch this product. Now, it's cool Damian Lillard won the three-point contest, you know, being a Blazer fan. But, like, does it add to your legacy? Does it – no, it doesn't. And so, like, I don't know. I'm, I'm with you. It's just – I'd be okay if they just did away with all these all-star games, like in all sports, and they just basically just picked a team and say, hey, you were an all-star, and then, uh, you know, got a little extra incentive in your contract or something. Yeah, or just remind the players, like, it's a, like if the players had designed a weekend, and they did, this is what it would be. And so I don't think it's even like – I think that the, the thing is the players don't understand what viewers want from this game. And I think viewers in this game likely – want to see their favorite players play and compete against each other and see who's better and see like get a chance to see these guys trying to coexist instead of shooting half-court shots and bouncing the ball and dunking it and no defense and 55 points for Jason Tatum and an MVP. But John, if you're a, if you're a player, you know, if you're LeBron James, you're Jason Tatum, you're Damian Lillard, do you do you blame them for not playing defense, for not playing hard in a meaningless game that has no effect on anything? Like I don't blame them I for don't that. Know. I I don't I don't need them to like D up like Paul Pierce in Game Seven, but I need a little bit of um I need a 
A little bit of effort. Just a little bit of effort. Peter Sampson, what did you make of the game? Uh, I avoided it because I knew it was going to be terrible. I watched the three-point contest. I watched the dunk contest. And, uh, I mean, to me, it just feels like a zombie all-star weekend. It feels inevitable, and it has... Man, for the last week, really, the lead-up to it. Why, why is that, though? Why? What is happening? Because I They're going to get rid of it, and they're going to put a mid-season yeah. tournament in the middle, and they're just kind of letting it be bad so they can justify it is what I think. I think the players I think the players want control of all of this and in the end the players don't know what viewers want. You know, they the load management thing's a whole nother discussion, which I hope they fix. I I'm on the side of the fans on the load management part. Like I don't expect everybody to play eighty two games, but I, I love it when you have young players in the league telling the older players, Hey, play play when you're play when you can. You're eighty five percent, you're ninety percent, you can get on the court safely and you can play. Go out and play because the fans are showing up, and, and you know, as play, as players have talked about, the the players who get it uh, will say, "Look, there's there's a chance here that you are, uh, you know, you're. You, this is the only time someone could see a game." Anthony Edwards said it during NBA All Star Weekend, and and now he's my favorite player in the NBA. Here he is. If there's anything I could change about the league to make it better, probably just all the guys sitting resting. That's the only thing I probably don't like. Um, just play, man. If you, if you, if you, if you, 80%, you got to play. I, I don't, I don't like all the sitting, missing games and stuff like these people. These people might have enough money to come to one game. You know what I'm saying? And it, that might be the game they come to and then you sitting out. You know what I'm saying? So I take pride in trying to play every game because I don't know. It might be one fan that has never seen me play and I'm trying to play. So I don't, that's the only thing I don't like. Uh, guys just sitting out. Can we build a franchise around that guy? The interesting like thing him. about Anthony Edwards too, John, is coming out of college, like, the thought and the knock against him was, does he love basketball? Like, does he love the game of basketball? Because he wasn't a big historian of basketball. Like, he's more of, like, a, you know, video game guy. Like, he doesn't pay attention to what's actually happening. But, like, the dude is a baller, and he likes to play basketball. And we see that with the other guys like Russell Westbrook, who just get out in the court and play as hard as they can every game. Is it great? No, but, like, you can't, you can't knock the effort that they put out there. So it's really interesting to hear Anthony Edwards say that, when the criticism of him was, well, does he love basketball? Yeah, he loves basketball. He's just not a historian of the game. Like, LeBron, historian of the game, but he'll sit out because, you know, he's got to stay healthy for the playoffs. He's got to get his legacy. I'm, I'm with you on this. Yeah, I, I just, I'm, I'm ready for the league to take the league back. Yeah, that's all I'm ready for. I love the players, but you can't put the NFL Players Association in charge of the NFL. They'd never let it happen. And I think it's part of why that game is so much better than the NBA. Not the All-Star game, the game itself. All of it. Leave it here. We'll talk about the craziness in the Pac-12. Why does it bring out the nutty in so many people when we talk about the Pac-12 and this ongoing media rights discussion? Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. New York Post had an interesting story today about Apple emerging, I'm going to use their words, emerging as a potential landing spot for the Pac-12 football programs. Now, uh, that was immediately greeted by some uh, hysteria and hand-wringing from people going, run, run out of the conference immediately. Um, and and I guess that that's the reaction probably that ESPN wants from the Pac-12 fan base. Why do I say ESPN wants that? Well, here's my read on that story. 
Uh, Andrew Marshawn of the New York Post uh, is a reporter who does a good job on the sports media landscape. But like anything, you got to step back from 20,000 feet and ask yourself what's really going on in this story. And I read it, and the first five or six paragraphs, I immediately was like, oh, I can see what's happening here. ESPN and Amazon are in a negotiation with the Pac-12 for their media rights. Okay, I know that, you know that, everybody knows that. Why Apple emerges all of a sudden as a potential um, landing spot and potentially as a all-in streaming deal, meaning you'd have to subscribe to Apple Plus to get the Pac-12 games uh, in the 2024 football season, why that would emerge as a possibility is puzzling at face value. But, and it's designed, I think, to create a little backlash in the marketplace. I think we, we are watching a public negotiation, and I think ESPN is probably being leveraged by the Pac-12 and the Pac-12 is saying to ESPN, hey, we could go with Apple. We could do an all-in deal. Here's the number we need. And I think ESPN is pushing back. And I think that's why you're seeing this story today at this time go public. Because ESPN wants some backlash in the marketplace. And, you know, if you are a Pac-12 fan that can't see that, I get it. You're probably just sick and tired of this negotiation being ongoing. But I'm a little disappointed in some people out there that I think should be a little more level-headed. When you see a report like that, ask yourself who's reporting it. Ask yourself who benefits from it. Ask yourself, is the reporter serving the readers? Is the reporter ser serving a source? You have to ask yourself that, those questions with everything. Like, I, I am in a position where I am constantly, people try to use me constantly for their own benefit. Entities, leagues, conferences, coaches, players, media entities, media companies, constantly. Consultants. Uh, I took a half an hour call today from a consulting firm that has an agenda and is trying to feed me information that would help their client. And I have to sift through that and decide what do I want to share publicly and what do I have to go, no, that's just a consultant trying to get something out there. So I think with this story, I see Apple Plus TV emerging as a potential landing spot. Let's unpack that. It is emerging means nothing. Uh, as a potential landing spot means nothing. Victor Lambs, my, my uh, English professor in college, he would have circled that and said, weak language, send it back to me. Like, what does that mean? Is emerging as a potential landing spot. Doesn't mean anything. It isn't saying anything. It's just saying Apple TV's in this negotiation. Now, ESPN, Amazon Prime, Fox Sports, lukewarm on the league. I think uh, Fox Sports is probably out of this negotiation. I don't, see a, I don't see a place for Fox to be in the next Pac-12 deal. I think that they are probably out of inventory when it comes to the Big Ten and everything that they have added. So... I, I don't know if Fox Sports is lukewarm. They might just be out of it. So keep an eye on that. The next big report is Fox withdraws, right? But, well, I don't think that they're really in this. Like CBS wasn't really in, in this either. But ESPN and Amazon Prime, I think, are in it. And I think what we're probably seeing here is ESPN pushing back as, as the Pac-12 is trying to use Apple for leverage. I don't think for a second the Pac-12 wants to go all in with a streaming partner. But I think the Pac-12 wants the best possible deal it can get. So it's probably posturing that it might do that. And ESPN's going, oh, yeah, we'll leak that publicly. And, and that's how a story like this finds the light of day. So 
you know, I read through it, I get into four or five paragraphs, and it's a lot of ifs and coulds and is emerging and potential, and there's no, there's no real meat here for me other than a little hysteria. And I don't, I, I'm with you. I'm sick and tired of the Pac-12 deal being unsettled. I also think that they're trying to get the best possible deal that they can get. So I understand that. I'm trying to balance that with my daily disappointment that this is ongoing and I have to talk about it because what I want to get to is I want to talk about the conference basketball tournament. I want to talk about the fact that Oregon loses in overtime to Washington and then lays an egg against Washington State and suddenly Dane Allman's team, which I thought could get to the four seed, doesn't look like it's going to go much of anywhere this season. And I'm, watching, I'm looking at the conference standings and I'm going, okay, UCLA and Arizona are pretty good. After that, it's a potluck. Like, you know, take a little casserole, take a little bit of spaghetti, have some jello. You know, it's it, it nobody there's no meat there. There's nothing uh, nothing of substance after those top two teams and I'm just puzzled at this conference and how it is uh sort of lost its way in men's basketball. And I'm interested in that. I do have a question and concern about the media rights here, John. Okay, so here here's my thing about it. I know the Larry Scott era was terrible and we all understand that. But what has George Klyovkov done to give Pac-12 fans confidence that this deal is going to be a good deal? And I think that's where I am coming from, and I think a lot of fans would be, is like, what, what, where's the confidence coming from that this deal is going to be good? And it's been going on for so long, right? Like, we thought it might be done you know, close in the fall, in the summer. No, it wasn't. It just kept moving back and back and back. And now we just hear random things every now and again about it. Like, I'm just losing confidence in what's going to happen, and maybe that's because the Big 12 has been so open about it in the public and the Pac-12 has been quiet. But I, for me, it's just like I, I want to see progress done, and it seems like there hasn't been progress done, and maybe that's done on purpose, not doing it publicly, but I think the other conferences have done that and given a lot of their fans some confidence. It's a definite difference in style, and it's not the style I would have picked, right? And I, I think from the beginning, I criticized George Kopkop at the beginning because after his media day remarks – where he came out and you know he he threw a couple grenades back and he said you know he tried to tried to balance the uh, get get his legs underneath him and balance the conference's timeline. He went quiet and he went quiet all the way to December and so he went basically from July to December without really talking. And I thought it was a misfire. I had other people in the media world and the crisis management world saying no, that's a definite strategy that they're taking. They're basically saying we're going to fly above the fray. We're not going to, on a daily basis, be responding to rumors, and you know. And so they they went quiet. And but I think in that absence, there was a lot of hand wringing. There was a lot of noise from the Big 12. There was some noise continued from the Big 10, which postured like it was going to take more teams. And I think it eroded some confidence in the stakeholders and in the media markets that the Pac-12 sits in. And so I don't blame you for being a for being tired of it and b for going. What is going on? Because they haven't really said anything. But I, you know, I'm telling you that I, I talk with several university presidents and chancellors in the conference, multiple athletic directors in the conference, obviously a whole bunch of coaches in the conference. But I have, you know, I feel like I'm told this morning even by an athletic director who's not one of the uh, in-state athletic directors told me this morning that that you know this person said to me. Uh, that they feel uh, really encouraged and they feel like they're all united and there's a whole bunch of noise out there and they want it to be over too. But I feel like we're in the – I was told on Friday we're in the seventh inning of the negotiation. That was the quote 
that I that I ran on Saturday on johnconzano.com. So Friday afternoon, somebody said, um, hey, we're in the seventh inning. And this is coming from a source inside the Pac-12 headquarters. Uh, seventh inning of the negotiation. So I think what we're seeing publicly right now is some public negotiation that is going on. And uh, I think it's designed to elicit the reaction that you're having and the reaction that some others are having. I mean, I've seen media members losing their minds over this thing. Like that, that has, That's the thing. Like, I go on YouTube, and you know, I'm trying to find clips for, uh, for uh, Punch It Audio, and it's like I'll type in Pac-12 media rights, and all the videos that come up are just like Big 12 are going to expand and steal Pac-12 teams. Like, every single one, it's never a positive for the Pac-12. And, like, I don't know if that's just – and for me, like, it just goes to show, like, the Big 12 seems like they're just more on top of it, more confident – but then when I hear you talk, it's like, well, you know, they're just doing this. The Pac-12 is doing it behind the scenes. So it's one of those things where it's like, you, you know, I trust you and I trust your sources, John. But yeah. at the same time, everything I'm looking at is Big 12 this, Big 12 that, Pac-12 falling behind, Pac-12 going to, you know, go away. It's just hard for me to believe that the Pac-12 is on yeah. until I see it. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm just – and part of that is, look, we went through an election cycle, two elections in a row where we got a dose of misinformation and propaganda from all corners at all times. I think it's become kind of the way of the world and the way that people do business. And I think that uh, it, the Big 12 directly, and in a lot of cases indirectly, is clouding the marketplace with a lot of uncertainty and a lot of messaging. And I think there's some lazy national media members who aren't sourced, who are picking up on all that and just regurgitating it over and over. And I read all the same stuff. I read it all, okay? I read it all. And I'm watching columnists who and reporters that I respect on the national level, and they're repeating all of that propaganda, and I'm reading it going, where's the sourcing? Where's the sourcing? And it never pops up. At any point, it doesn't say, hey, a source inside the, the athletic department in uh, you know a certain Pac-12 university says that this university is ready to leave. You know why? Because nobody's saying that. None of the presidents in the, in the conference have anywhere to go. None of the athletic departments have anywhere to go. And yet you've got people like Softy in Seattle who are perpetuating the, the whole thing. Like if Oregon or Washington were offered Big Ten membership, they would bolt tomorrow. Okay. But they're not being offered Big Ten membership, so why are we talking about this? If they were offered SEC membership, would they go too? Like if they were offered to go to the NFL, uh, you know, Western Division, the NFL, NFC West, uh, would they leave for that? Yeah, of course they would. But nobody's offering these things. And so there's, there's nowhere for any of these schools to go. Nobody's leaving the Pac-12 for the Big 12 because it's, it, at best it's a lateral move that would create all kinds of travel problems for your other sports. Like if Oregon or Washington wanted, really wanted to go to the, hey, we're leaving the Pac-12, we're going to the Big 12 tomorrow, there's nowhere to go. Like they can't make that move. And they, could, they might as well just sit tight, get the deal that they're going to get, which is going to be a comparable number to what the Big 12 conference got, and move on. But I think the mistake the Pac-12 made that we're going to look back and we're going to study this after is I think all of that silence, they allowed everybody else to tell their story in the meantime. And – I think it's going to be PR 101 that, you know, present, hey, what do you do when USC and UCLA leave? i tell you what you don't do. You don't go quiet afterwards. And I think that was the big misfire of this conference. I, I think in the end, the 10 remaining universities are going to stick together. I think you're going to sign a deal. I think they'll be on linear TV. Don't fret. Don't, you're being caught in the middle of a public negotiation. They're going to also have a streaming element. 
I wouldn't be surprised if they sell the Pac-12 networks in some form or fashion to Amazon or Apple. And then five or seven years from now, we go through all of this again while kind of watching USC and UCLA to see, like, did it work? Or was it a nightmare for them? Because nobody really knows what that's going to be for the other sports besides football. You know, it's that golf team and the volleyball team and the soccer team are traveling to go play at Rutgers and at Maryland. You know, what is that going to do to those programs? We'll find out. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald Face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. It's Tuesday. We didn't have a Monday show because of the holiday. But uh, we got to wrap up uh, our big splash uh, in, uh, in uh, weekend fashion. We'll do that here momentarily. Softy, uh, Dave Softy Mahler on uh, KJR in Seattle joined 365 Sports for an interview. Here's what he told them about Washington and Oregon as it pertains to the potential for Big Ten membership. No, I think I think I think schools like Washington and Oregon, they're not in it for the long haul at all, unless they find a reason to be. And the reason to be would be a bigger share of the pie than the other remaining eight schools in the conference. And I don't know if that's going to happen. I can tell you this right now that Washington, if they were offered membership in the Big Ten, they would leave tomorrow. If Oregon was offered Big Ten membership, they would leave tomorrow. That's not on the table right now, though, for them. Uh, and I don't think it's going to be for a while. I mean, look, you know, USC and UCLA right now in the Big Ten have a freaking monopoly over the West Coast. I mean, if you're if you're growing up on the West Coast, you're playing high school football on the West Coast, and you want to play in a big-time Power Five national champion Final Four contending year-in-and-year-out conference, you're going to play football in the Big Ten. You're going to play football for USC and UCLA. I mean, they've got much more cachet right now than the remaining 10 teams do in the conference. So if I'm USC and UCLA, I don't want UW and Oregon coming with me because I want the West Coast for myself. And look, he's got – I mean, there's a little bit of truth in what he's saying in that I agree with him that if Washington or Oregon were offered a full share and full membership into the Big Ten, um, they would try to pack their bags and go. I don't know if it would be as easy as them going – but they would try to because it pencils out as a no-brainer financially. That said, I don't agree with him about, you know, Oregon or Washington being a viable candidate at any number, even a reduced distribution. Because you have to think about it. It's not USC and UCLA that you think about in the monopoly. You have to think about Purdue. You had to think about Illinois. You have to think about Northwestern. You have to think about Rutgers and Maryland because those schools, do they want to add a Washington or Oregon to the conversation and subsidize Washington or Oregon? Because Washington and Oregon don't bring media markets that that uh, justify a valuation of more than about 35 to $38 million a year in distributions. So why, why would you, if you're Purdue, why do you want to, compete against Washington and Oregon while you already have to compete against USC, UCLA, and Penn State, and Ohio State, and Michigan, and some others. Do you buy the comment that he said for Oregon and Washington to want to stay in the Pac-12, they would need a bigger piece of the pie? No. Where are they going? What leverage do they have? 
Like, they can't go to the Big Ten. We all know it. Like, would they, I know it. Would they, they know it. Would they actively be trying to get out of the Pac-12 or just be – they're stuck? The, the, if they sign this grant of rights, they, they're signed to the grant of rights. Like, you know, as soon as they sign their media rights away, they're stuck. And they're stuck until the next deal comes up. But, you know, like Texas and Oklahoma are in the Big 12 trying to get the SEC. But it, here's the other part of the equation that, that not, you know, nobody brings up, but they should. If you're Oregon or Washington and – Let's say the Pac-12 gets a deal that's comparable with the Big 12's number, so you're getting $32 million a year, and the Pac-12 says to Oregon and Washington, okay, uh, instead of splitting your postseason money among the 12 members or the 10 members uh, of the conference, you get to keep a larger share if you make the postseason. So if Oregon or Washington get to the college football playoff, they don't have to share it with Washington State and Oregon State they get to keep a larger share, like Gonzaga gets in the WCC. Suddenly, I think you're speaking their language because I think Oregon and Washington, if they want to sell to recruits, you want to be in the playoff, they can sell to recruits. Hey, we make the playoff almost every year. Look at look at our track record. We've made it eight times in 12 years. Because that's the kind of success that Oregon and Washington can have in a conference that doesn't include USC and UCLA to some extent. So I think there's some advantages that nobody talks about. I talked to the ADs. I talked to the presidents. Uh, you know, Rick George, the Colorado AD, he said on the record, and he's got guts. I mean, a lot of these ADs will tell me stuff, and then they'll say, hey, that's just for background. Like, I can use that. I can say I talked to an AD, but I can't name the AD. But Rick George of Colorado comes out and says, hey, why would you go to a conference that has 16 or 18 teams and, oh, by the way, you got to compete with Ohio State and Michigan and Wisconsin and Penn State to get to the playoff. Why would you do that versus maybe staying in the Pac-12 and collecting f- a far greater share of the playoff money yourself and going, hey, i got to beat Utah, i got to beat Colorado, i got to beat Washington and Oregon State to get to the playoff. I don't have to beat Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, and USC. Uh, one of those things feels like an easier path to me, but nobody wants to talk about it. But, uh, you know, I agree there's some truth in what Softy's saying because, you know, he's re- he's repeating what, you know, everybody knows. Like, you know, more money is good. So, yes, Washington and Oregon would like more money. But the clearer path to being part of the playoff, the clearer path to recruiting, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that what he's spitting there is truthful. Because I think USC and those Big Ten schools are going to have a hell of a time fighting each other to get into the playoff. Leave it here. The 4 o'clock hour is next. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. We'll play some punch and audio here coming up. Like a lot of you, I'm ready for the Pac-12 to have a deal so we can start talking about football and basketball. We'll talk about the Pac-12 basketball season coming up. Really disappointed to see where Oregon State is. Wayne Tinkle, the Oregon State coach, men's coach, will be joining us on uh, Thursday's show. Next week, uh, we will have the president at Oregon State on the program. Jatha Murthy will be joining us. She is 
on the job for four months as the new president at Oregon State. I'm excited to talk to her and we can get to the bottom of some of this stuff, but just to get to know her and introduce her to you as well in what will be about a 25 or 30 minute interview with the president at Oregon State. I've also reached out to the interim president at the University of Oregon, see if he wants to come on the show. Equal access on this program, of course. We'll talk about the All-Star Game. The theory, the prevailing theory in the NFL that you should not pay your running backs. Is that good advice? People aren't drafting running backs high in the fantasy league. Uh, is that Should NFL GMs be paying attention to fantasy football owners? We'll see about that. Plus Tiger Woods uh, in the, uh, the uh, lingering effects of his actions on the court or on the course. We'll talk about that as well. All of it part of Punch and Audio. Let's do it. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Let's start with the NFL where LaShawn McCoy is pointing at Eric Bieniemy. Doesn't think he was a good coordinator. Played for him. Here's a player talking about Bieniemy who was passed over for multiple jobs before finally getting an opportunity with the Washington football team or the commanders as they're known now. But here's LaShawn McCoy talking Bieniemy. Punch it. What's his value? What makes him a good office coordinator? See, the problem is a lot of these people that go on social media, oh, he should be the guy for the job. They haven't played there. They're not in the locker room. I've been in the rooms where he's coaching, and he has nothing to do with the pass game at all, right? When the plays are, are designed, that's Andy Reid. When you talk about officer coordinators, I can tell you what makes Brian Dayball with the Giants a very, very good coordinator. I can tell you with Andy Reid or Doug Peterson. But when I ask about um, Eric Bieniemy, what makes him good? When we watch the film of practices and we correct the, the, the wide receivers, the running backs, the, the quarterbacks, he doesn't talk in there. Andy Reid talks in there. He may say things to the running back because he's an ex-running back coach. I get that. But he has no real responsibility. Now you go from the Chiefs, where you can hide behind Patrick Mahomes, Andy Reid. Then you go to the, the Washington, where you got to call plays. You got to run the meetings. You got to run the installs. LaShawn McCoy talking about Eric Bieniemy. Now, look, uh, this helps explain... Part of the thinking of why Bienemy was not valued. I've heard people talk about that in that it's Andy Reid's offense and you know, but the hope here is that Eric Bienemy learned something. Right? That he didn't just sit there and say, I'm not gonna have anything to do with it, I'm not gonna think about it. Let's give the guy a chance. I think that's what he deserves is an opportunity, and clearly the Washington commanders are ready to give it to him. But I get it, and I and I don't think LaShawn McCoy's alone. In echoing that thought, I've heard that thought from other coaches. I reached out to people when Bienemy uh, was passed over multiple times, and the prevailing thought was that nobody believes that he's the play caller in Kansas City, that everybody thinks he's a position coach, much in the same way that Dan Lanning was a position coach slash coordinator at Georgia. So keep an eye on that, and keep an eye on Dan Lanning. You have to grow. You have to learn something. I mean, head coaches all start somewhere. But we'll see what Eric Bieniemy does with his offense 
and without Patrick Mahomes in Washington. Kevin Millar was on with Maggie Perloff talking about the bigger bases in baseball. Baseball experimenting with a bunch of changes in what will be a messy spring training. Punch it. I think that's what they're trying to do, right? You're trying just to kind of keep that tempo. Now, baseball, I know, listen, change. We've been it's been around for 100 years, and people, you know, get get a little cranky, you know, during change. But you have to adjust, right? We are in a in a generation now. Uh, it's more branded. They're more individual. They're given signs and kiss signs. You know, when they when they get a single and driving a run, you can hit a home run now with your shirt halfway down, you know to your chest and, and, and pointing the dugout walking to first where only Barry Bonds or guys that hit 600 home runs did that. So I think you have to adjust those times. And, you know, if you're going to try to get it more exciting and a little faster, let's go. Look, MLB is increasing the size of bases from 15 inches square to 18 inches square. It's not a huge difference, but it's going to, it's designed to give the infielders a little more distance between themselves and the base runners, trying to decrease the collisions. Also, though, it decreases the space between the bases by about four and a half inches. Keep an eye on how that is received and how that plays out. I think it's an interesting thing in baseball that a routine ground ball hit to shortstop can be fielded by the shortstop, and the average base runner will get thrown out by a step or two every time. Uh, now we're talking about a difference of four and a half inches on that, on that uh, you know, toe reaching for the base. Uh, I don't know. I don't think this is the biggest change. I think the pitch clock, the shift limits, and the fact that you know you're limited on how many times you can try to pick a runner off. I think those are going to be bigger messes in the spring training. I don't think anybody's going to be talking about the bases. I hope I'm. I hope I'm right on that one. Max Kellerman talking about why you shouldn't pay your running backs. What does he mean? Punch it. You know, I hate to say it, guys, and I think there should be an, an, an exception in the CBA for running backs. They should be paid outside of the salary cap. But I got to say it, as things are now, you never have to pay your running back. It almost never works out. And unless you're talking about a guy who gives you a premium at the position, like Saquon mm -hmm. did this year for the Giants when they didn't have anything else, or Christian McCaffrey did for the Niners putting them over the top, I don't want to say they're all the same, right? Because there is a difference. But... Man, if you got a good offensive line, you give me a decent back, I'm going to be good. And if you have a bad offensive line, it doesn't really matter who your running back is anyway. You're not going to do much. I hate to say it, but I, I don't think you got to pay either. I, 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 I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, you look at the running backs who played, you know, in this year's Super Bowl. You look at the Rams winning with Cam Akers and Leonard Fournette winning with the Buccaneers and Damian Williams before him, Super Bowl champion with the Chiefs and, uh, you know, LeGarrette Blunt three times and C.J. Anderson. And, you know, guess what? Leading rusher for the Seahawks in 2013, Percy Harvin. Like, we're not talking about the bell cow running backs of yesteryear dominating the Super Bowl. So, you know, along the same lines of teams that have quarterbacks on rookie deals have a tremendous advantage because they have more money to spend on offensive linemen, defensive linemen, their defenses in general, wide receivers. They're just more money to spread, spread around. I think the NFL GMs have probably figured out that paying running backs is not the best use of your money. Now, I say that knowing that, you know, Christian McCaffrey is averaging about $16 million a year 
under contract with the 49ers. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out for him. Is he such a valuable piece of that offense that you can afford to basically put uh, 7% of your salary cap towards his salary? Ezekiel Elliott, $16.7 million next year, 7.3% of the salary cap. So if you have a Derrick Henry, you have an Ezekiel Elliott, you have a Christian McCaffrey, okay, you have a different question. But the rest of these guys... Uh, no, is the running back position dead, Stephen? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, but I also think that th- there's – it's not – I take it back. It's not dead because you definitely need a good running back, but you need to have guys that fill certain roles. Like it's a role-player position now. Uh, you need your you need your goal line back. You need your pass catching back. You need your pass blocking back. There's really not many that can do it all. So it will be interesting, like you said, with Christian McCaffrey because going back to that Eagles game, he was their only offensive weapon, but – the game wasn't close. Like, you still need a quarterback to be a good team. So, like, running backs is definitely not like it was back in the 90s. Like, you, you need a quarterback. You need other positions besides the running back. Yeah, I get you. I just wonder if teams in a money ball era where everybody's studying data and analytics, if teams have wised up to, hey, can we get a quarterback and a rookie deal and let's go with a serviceable back and spend our money elsewhere? If that is not a formula for winning, I don't know what is because that's kind of explains some of the Super Bowl uh, winners of the last couple of years. I mean, Patrick Mahomes not on a rookie deal, but you get the picture. They're not investing a whole bunch of money on a running back in Kansas City. The Oregon Ducks lost to Washington State on the final play. Here's the call on FS1 over the weekend. Punch it. No timeouts for Oregon. Boy, got to get that three up quick. Kuznar does and missed it. Put back. Washington State wins it. There it is. Washington State on the final play. A uh, bad weekend, a bad trip for Oregon as they lose at Washington on Wednesday. Lose against Washington State uh, over the weekend. Uh, tough 0-2. And, and when you look at the men's basketball standings in the Pac-12 conference, Oregon now sitting at 9-8. and eight. On the outside looking in, but just to, you know, essentially a game out of, uh, you know, a game out of fourth place in the standings. Not out of it, but beyond UCLA and Arizona and USC if they're healthy. The rest of this conference is just kind of okay. Does Oregon have to win the Pac-12 tournament to get in the NCAA tournament now? I I think they do now. I think they were as close as they've been to being in prior to going on this recent skid where they lost and lost. And why I say that is, as I look at their schedule coming up, you know, they'll play at Oregon State. I guess a chance to get a W, but that's not going to help them as it pertains to getting in the tournament. And then beyond that, uh, they will host Cal and Stanford. So they're playing three of the worst teams in the standings. They should go 3-0, and but I think they're going to have to go into the Pac-12 tournament, and I think if not win it, they're going to have to be in the semifinals, knock out a UC- knock out a UCLA, knock out an Arizona, and you know get to the final. Maybe they're in on that case, but I think the Pac-12 will get three, three teams in, but right now I don't think Oregon's one of them. I think it's UCLA, it's Arizona, and it's probably going to be USC if uh, USC – stays healthy 
Yeah, that we, is. We talked about this. Like, Oregon, they had four tough games. Utah, Arizona schools, and then or five. Then the UC, USC, UCLA. They went three and two in those games, which was great. Then they had the final five against the bottom five teams in the Pac-12. We said, probably got to go four and one. They start out 0-2. Not not a good sign there. Yeah, the fact that they're playing Stanford, Oregon State, and Cal in those last three just doesn't help them. I mean, there's just no opportunity for them to get a quality win in that stretch. Uh, Finally, Russell Russell Wilson, Russell Westbrook, does uh, does he make the Clippers a contender? Michael Wilbon says that uh, they're in the conversation. Punch it. With the temperament of Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, having a blast furnace guy like like Russell Westbrook, it seems to be the way to go. And, and let me just say this. I believe that, that, that Ty Lue, who probably is the most underrated coach in the NBA and one of the two or three best in my book, this is a great place for him to go. It may drive T. Lou crazy for a while, but he can handle it. Because T. Lou's had these situations. They had Kyrie and LeBron. He knows what he's doing. And so this is a big deal, Tony, that that bumps the Clippers right up to the top of that discussion of the Western Conference race, in my opinion. I think he's being a little ambitious there. Steven, Peter, are they are the Clippers contenders? The thing is, is you know, after they signed Westbrook, their odds got worse. <laughs> so to win the championship, they were eleven to one, signed Westbrook twelve to one. Um, I do agree with Wilbon that I think there's, I think there's a little too much hate going on right now. Like, if it works out, which it probably won't because it hasn't really anywhere for about ten years, but it, it, he does provide a need for the Clippers. The Clippers do need another guard on their team, so I don't hate the signing. Um, but I, you know, if my gut says it's not going to work in LA, just like it hasn't worked in LA or in Washington and all these other places, I think it's a risky signing. But if it does work out. It is a chance to make the Clippers that much better to compete with the Suns, who I think are the uh, the favorites in the Western Conference. Yeah, it's not going to work, though. I mean, he makes, when's the last time he made a team he was on better? It's been a minute, and it's interesting. Now, the Clippers clearly need a point guard. I mean, they're having Paul George bring up the ball, but, I mean, you know why? Because they traded away, you know, Reggie Jackson's gone. I guess they brought in Bones Highland, but I was praying for this move to happen because Portland desperately needs some help in the Western Conference, and if you have a team in that 6-7 spot that's going to add this guy who's made the last, I don't know, four teams he's been on worse, uh, you know, I say go for it. Yeah, I, I look at him, and I, I just look at the standings as Will Bond's talking. I'm listening to him. Denver is in the one spot. Memphis is in the two spot. After that, it gets tight. It's Sacramento, then the Clippers, then the Phoenix Suns and Dallas Mavericks. But I I look at this move, and I look at what the Suns and the Mavericks did at the deadline, and I don't think the Clippers are better than the Suns or Mavericks. They're going to get passed by both those teams, so they might get better. But I I still think they're no better than the fourth or fifth best team in the West, and they might be sixth even after making this – uh, this move, but I do think it keeps them from slipping into the seven, eight, nine, ten realm, you know, because I, I, I think Denver, Memphis, Sacramento, Phoenix, and Dallas all could be in front of the Clippers, but I think it keeps them out of that tournament, and for that reason, it's probably the right move to make. But a contender, I don't see it because I don't think they're going to get anywhere near winning the West, and even if they did. There's no way they're beating Boston or Milwaukee in a finals. So I wouldn't, like, I, I, I don't think that they're a title contender conversation team. The one thing that it has going for it is 
you know, it's going to be about 25 games of Westbrook. Can you get a good 25 games rather than a whole season? Because that's where, you know, he wears on guys, wears in the yeah. locker room. Can he get it together for 20, 25 games? If he can, it's a good pickup, but I'm with Peter. I don't think it's going to work out. I do. I, I don't, I don't mind the signing though by the Clippers. You got to get talent in there, but I don't think it's going to work. There it is. Punch it audio. Anna's popped into the studio. We'll talk uh, about the Pac-12. We'll talk about gambling and sports. Always uh, on our mind. Some interesting gambling figures out today that might blow your mind. I'll share those coming up. Back to the bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I've got some passes uh, to the golf show to give away coming up. Uh, I'll do it this hour. So you'd like to go to the golf show? I'll give you some details on that. Uh, and uh, Anna has popped into the studio. Anna, what's going on? Speaking of golf, I'm sorry, I can't help myself. I'm just so proud of her. <laughs> oh, oh, you got a golf story to tell. Oh, I was going to save this until the five at five, but I can't. I can't. My little cousin. Uh, whose name happens to be my maiden name, Anna Song. Maybe that's why I like her so much. Um, she, over the weekend, won this big golf tournament at Stanford University. It's her first American Junior Golf Association win. She is 15 years old. She became the youngest champion of the West Coast All Girls Invitational. So you're namesake and a song won a golf tournament junior golf tournament yes so proud of her you're proud of her should we get her on the show you should get her on the show you should get her on the show our listeners will be like why are we listening to how old is she she's 15 why are we listening to a 15 year old kid talk about golf and we'd be like you know this is anna's guest we'll do that maybe do one of those interviews where you and the guests think you're on air yeah but really we're on a commercial break oh yeah. And you guys do the interview. You're so mean. And then we go, hey, wrap it up. No. no people, people are going to want to hear what she has I to say. I actually think it would be kind of a cool story about, from a kid's perspective, what is that world like? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Does, who caddies for her? Does she have a caddy? Does her parents caddy? I don't know. Oh, yeah. I think who's she has her, a caddy. Who's her caddy? I know that uh, my cousin, who is her dad, is, uh, you know, the one chaperoning her to all these tournaments. But uh, and she's just worked so darn hard, and this is a big, big thing for her. So that's really cool. Yeah. Do you yeah. think we should push our kids to be golfers? I don't know. I don't know. Get them out there. I watched the golfing, and it just seems so torturous. Like it just seems so hard. Golf and in general, or what do you think? Just in general, but like at that level, that kind of pressure and the really kind of the mental resilience that mm -hmm. you have to have okay. to keep going. Yeah. I'm not saying our kids couldn't do it. I just don't know if I would want to subjugate them yeah, to it. It's the kind of sport where I, I hate to sound like every golf pro in America. <laughs> it's the kind of sport that if you like nobody taught me to play golf. Yeah. Okay. I learned in part by being on the course myself and making mistake after mistake or I did take a couple of lessons with a couple of pros, just a lesson here, a lesson there, yeah. and I got better okay. when I took those lessons. Okay. Now, if I had been 
12 or 13 or 14 yeah. and had somebody teach me the proper way to swing, I wouldn't have to unlearn all these bad habits that I created, and I would know more about the game, and maybe I would have found a love for it. But it is something you can play, you know, until you're old. I know. That always makes me laugh when people say that. You can play that game. Oh, tennis. That's a great game. You can play it until you're old. Pickleball, you can play yeah. that game until you're old, too. Yeah. In fact, you can learn it when you're old. That's the <laughs> yeah. thing about pickleball. You can't even play it when you're young. You have to be old to play pickleball. <laughs> yeah. Young person tries to play pickleball, you immediately age. Right, right, right. Immediately become, uh, you know, you start screaming at the clouds. Yelling at the damn kids to get off the courts. Everybody hush. Get the skaters out of here. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think? Do you think you want to – do you want them to play golf? I'm more inclined at this young age uh, for the two younger ones to put them in team sports because, for me, yeah. having them understand what it means to be part of a team, own your mistakes, you know, be something yeah. bigger than yourself, that's important What's to wrong me. with both? Why can't you play a team sport but also have – the individual accountability that an individual sport plays. There's a there's a certain accountability. When you play golf or tennis or you run cross country or track, it's you. Yeah. Like you it's there's nobody else to blame. There's a personal responsibility for you to do the work, for you to make the plays. You you can point fingers all you want at the lady coughing or some guy making a noise when you're in your backswing. But the truth is, it's up to you on the course. It's true. So yeah. we'll just have our kids play all the sports. All right. On that note, let's go. All the sports. Let's go to uh, Pebble Beach in uh, California. Speaking of golf. On the uh, central coast of California, where Turk is calling in from uh, Pebble Beach. What's going on, Turk? Johnny Ballgame, my main man from Amsterdam. How you doing? I'm doing all right. Let me. Hey, on that note, you live. Yes, sir. You live and work in the hotbed of golf on the central coast of California, okay? Yes, so I, I know you've got a question about the Big 12 or something else, but I want to ask you a question because you've called in. Do you see a lot of kids picking up the game there because golf is so prevalent in that community? I drive by, uh, it's called uh, Black Horse and uh, Bayonet. It's right by the old uh, Ford Ord. Every day I take my dog up there in the morning around 637. And there are kids out there taking lessons every single day. At 6.30 in the morning? Hey, listen, I, I'm unemployed right now. What else do I have to do? I get no, I don't, I don't, hour don't, I'm not judging you. He's talking about me. Hey, can talking, I ask you something, John? Hold on. Hold on. She's, talking, she's talking kids? about the kids. The kids. Turk, she's talking about the kids being out there at 6.30 or 7. She's not talking they about are. you. No, I'm out there, but the kids are out there before school because golf is that important down here. Wow. It's a big time, But man. the other thing, John, I can't believe you didn't mention, Anna, that in 1995 you won a wiffle ball tournament in Capitola, California. Yeah, I did. Tell about I, that. I did. Oh, wow. It's not, on, it's not high on my list. No, buddy, it was pretty impressive. Life, back where do day. I find the box score on that? Life accomplishments. <laughs> but, hey, what was your question on the Big 12 front? So I understand the whole thing about the money and, let's say, you know, you say Washington, Oregon. Well, do they have the records to go in and everything? But when you look at the Big 12, who the top, you know, the dogs, right? you got Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State. You're, ta you're talking about Minnesota's the, the, big, 10. You're talking about the big, big 10. You're talking about the Big 10. You're talking about the Big 10. I'm sorry. Yeah, the Big 10. Okay. But do you also think it has to do with the relevance of seeing them on TV? Because, you know, everything in football is 
East Coast bias to Midwest bias. Sure. West Coast doesn't really factor in because, hey, let's just face it, some of the games start at 7 o'clock at night. But if Ohio State were going to play, let's say, I don't know, Washington at 7 o'clock at night, you, I guarantee you the ratings would go through the roof on ESPN. Does you, does, do you think that factors in? Yeah, I don't. I don't think Ohio State wants to play a bunch of seven o'clock games, Turk. That's a, that's one thing. I think it's part partially why Ohio State backed out of the Washington non-conference game, twenty twenty four, twenty twenty five. I think Ohio State is going. Hey, we might have to go west a couple of times to play the LA schools in those seasons. We also don't want to play another game in the Pacific time zone that could potentially be a, a game that's not on in the middle of the day. So I think there's a factor there. I also think. We always think about it in football context, but we have to step back and think about any Pac-12 school that joins another conference is dragging the volleyball team, the soccer team, the baseball team, the softball team, the golf team, the tennis team with them. And so while it would be really fun for to see those matchups, I think we're going to get some of those matchups anyway in the college football playoff when it expands to 12 teams. I think we're going to see Ohio State play Washington and Oregon and Utah, and we're going to see Florida State or Miami make the playoff and play Ohio State or Michigan, and I think we're going to get some fun new matchups in the postseason. So I think that's all coming. But I do believe, and I've said this from the beginning, and I literally got a text message on the last commercial break from a sitting athletic director at one of the four-corner universities in the Pac-12, unsolicited, and he said, you are right on the mark. This is, you know, uh, there's a lot of noise out there that's disappointing. Um, you know, just keep reporting facts. You know, it, it basically he's trying to tell you Pac-12 fans that are listening to this show across the footprint. Like, the presidents came out with their statement a couple weeks ago where they said, hey, we're unified, whatever. It was, the, it was academic, speaking academic language. The ADs are also telling you, we're all in this. We're all committed. We're going to get a deal done. All this speculation about Oregon and Washington and Stanford and somebody else leaving, I think we're wasting our breath. I don't think any of this could is, is seriously being bantered about anymore. I think the Pac-12 schools are going to stay where they are. And now the question becomes, do they add SMU, do they add San Diego State, or, and I want to talk about this in the next segment, do they do something with Gonzaga? I'll tell you what I know next. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. So I'm going to put some of this in print, and I'll go into much more depth at johnconzano.com. So if you want to get a subscription, get a free subscription, get a paid subscription. But one of the things I'm looking hard at is Gonzaga as a possible member of the Pac-12 conference. I think there's a little bit of smoke to this and maybe some fire when it comes to the possibility of adding a brand like Gonzaga to the Pac-12 fold. And I'm starting to look at it not just as a basketball-only addition because it's not like the other sports at Gonzaga are going to go play independent 
uh, in you know compete independently. Uh, I know the Big 12 is probably going to also be interested in Gonzaga, but I, I I'm going to predict this. I feel like there's some movement on the Gonzaga front, and I'm having a hard time seeing them staying in the WCC beyond maybe a couple of months from now, maybe an announcement that they're going to leave the WCC. Keep an eye or an ear to the ground and an eye on that because I think they're restless. And I'm just starting to get some indicators that tell me that Gonzaga may be poking around. Uh, kind of a friends of friends type thing right now. But uh, I was looking more at the value of basketball in college athletics because we're told that basketball is only worth 20 cents of every media rights dollar. The 80 cents are, uh, of that is football related. I think there's going to be a lot more emphasis placed on basketball as a value proposition. Uh, Brett Yormark, the Big 12 Conference Commissioner, he told me, um, uh, and I asked him in our conversation last week about, you know, how do you how do you factor basketball into it? Listen to what he said here. Expansion uh, has come up a number of times. You've talked about it. Others have talked as well. Obviously, the Big Ten went. Uh, what's your criteria when you talk about adding members to the Big 12 in football? And where does basketball fit in that in your mind? It feels like basketball, men's basketball in particular, may be undervalued in some of these conferences. John, that's a great question. So when I think of expansion, I think about it in, in, a, in a couple of ways. Performance, cultural fit. Um, I, I also look at time zone and geography. Um, and it, it, so, you know, we, we go through this modeling, if you will, um, uh, you know, is it the right fit for us? And, um, you know, I can, I continue to, to think about expansion for all the right reasons and what's going to be additive to our conference, um, uh, in every way possible. Um, when you think about basketball specifically, I do feel that basketball, uh, is undervalued in this industry, um, I, uh, and I've got numbers and data to show it, but putting that aside for a minute, I just think it's been undervalued and it's been bundled with football. And um, I think at some point in time, that value proposition needs to change. And obviously I, I speak to that from a position of strength because we are the number one conference in America when you think about uh, college basketball. And um, at the right time, I'm sure we're going to be able to monetize it. Um, so I think there's real upside there going forward. What does that look like when you when you talk about basketball? Because I've heard, you know, others talk to Mark Few at Gonzaga about, you know, he mentioned a, a basketball-only conference that could sprout up in the future. In your mind, is that a pipe dream? Is that reality? What do you see on the horizon? No, listen, I, I don't get into the, the what-ifs of basketball-only conference. I can say that, obviously you know, football drives the day in the moment. Um, and you you guys have talked about that and we know that be, to be fact, but I, while at the same time, I feel basketball is undervalued. And I think we have an opportunity to monetize basketball in a way that hasn't been done before. And it's certainly something I'm thinking about it. So if the opportunity ever exists, we're within the construct of what makes sense for expansion where as part of that, we can double down on basketball and further cement our leadership position. It's certainly something that I'm willing to consider. 
All right, put yourself in Gonzaga's shoes for a second here. You're going to take all your sports. Nobody's going independent. You have to go to either the Big 12 or the Pac-12. feels like a no-brainer to me that you'd rather be in the Pac-12 if the money is equal. And that's where this whole valuation of basketball question comes, uh, you know, sort of rears itself. What is Gonzaga worth? What is the brand worth versus maybe the Pac-12 schools? And is Gonzaga a no-brainer addition to the Pac-12? Because I'm starting to think more and more that short-term, you don't want to cut them in like they're a football program, but could you cut them in to some extent? Because you know that if you don't, the Big 12 is going to grab them, and you don't want a Big 12 conference you know, to add Gonzaga, which should be in your should be in the Pac-12 portfolio. Um, how does that strike you, Gonzaga, as a potential addition to the Pac-12, Stephen? I love it. I I think it does provide a lot because I agree with Brett Yormark that I think that there is a lot of value in college basketball that is still underutilized, and Gonzaga is one of those schools. Yeah, they don't have a huge market being up in Spokane. But, like, they are one of, you know, a handful of schools, 10, 20 schools that have real value, I think, in basketball. Like, they are a national brand. They're not this little school up in Spokane anymore. They're not a mid-major. Like, they have graduated from that. And if they go to the Pac-12, you know, they instantly become, with you, with UCLA leaving, them and Arizona are the top two schools in the Pac-12 basketball-wise, and I don't even think it's close. Like, Gonzaga still might be number one in that situation. So I, I think it's I think it is a no-brainer. If, Pac, if the Pac-12 can get Gonzaga to be a basketball-only school, I think it's going to help the conference a lot. And I do think it will just help you know, elevate the whole conference in general because Gonzaga isn't that little school anymore. Like, they are one of the powers. They're one of the Blue Bloods, and they deserve to be in one of these power conferences. And it's the Pac-12. I mean, you got to get them there. I kind of wonder, though, like, uh, yes, they've done really well under Mark Few, and they're certainly part of the national conversation. But have – <laughs> have all of us been to Gonzaga? Like, it's way out there in nowhere East Washington. While Spokane is beautiful, like, I wonder about their ability to compete and recruit on the national stage. Will they be able to attract, you know, the top players? Will they be able to compete on the already, NIL front? I think they're already kind of getting players that are making them, you know, a one seed in the tournament, and they're getting to the Elite Eight in the Final Four. And, you know, they're chasing national championships. So I think the recruiting part, yeah, I mean, but I, I think Spokane's a tough place to recruit to. But, you know, I covered Big Ten basketball. I got to tell you, it's not a lot different than, like, Purdue, Indiana, Bloomington, Indiana, West Lafayette, Purdue. Like, it's it. those are Midwestern towns that have snow and bad weather maybe spokane's a midwestern town on the west coast and i also think with the recruiting part and uh like they've gotten really high nationally recruited guys chet holmgren and jalen suggs like they were both like top five even chet holmgren was number one in the nation going to gonzaga but drew timmy this year he came back to gonzaga and he said he's making over a million dollars in nil money so like there is money to be made up there as well because their their brand of gonzaga basketball is so big the the question i think the bigger question for gonzaga is you know, Tommy Lloyd leaves and goes to Arizona. Is he hurting Gonzaga? I wondered it this year when I saw St. Mary's beat Gonzaga and I'm looking at Arizona. I'm wondering how much Lloyd leaving and going to a Pac-12 school affected Gonzaga's recruiting and sort of what they were, like their momentum. 
it it feels like there was a little hiccup there, and it could be the same thing that Oregon's dealing with with Tony Stubblefield leaving the Oregon program to go to DePaul. Like that coincides with Dana Altman struggling a little bit as well. So I think there's a question here. There's a couple questions. One, can can you come up with enough value? Like if you're trying to place a value, trying to quantify what Gonzaga basketball is worth versus you know a, a Pac-12 football program. Um, it's not wor- as worth as much as a football program, but can you justify enough dollars that the Pac-12 could make a competitive offer to Gonzaga to say, look, we're going to cut you in, you're going to get a raise over what you're getting in the WCC, you're not going to have to go to the Big 12 or your golf team and your baseball team are going to have to go travel all around the country playing Big 12 teams. You could stay in the Pac-12 footprint. You could stay, you know, you'll have some natural rivalry with Oregon and Washington every year. You're going to replace UCLA in the lineup when it comes to men's basketball. I think there's a serious question there about Gonzaga to the Pac-12 conference. And the more I think about it, the more I start to unpack it, uh, and I'm working on some stuff. I'm trying to nail down some of the reporting on it. But the more I unpack it, the more I like it and, and the more interested I get in it. And I actually think if, you know, you know, Mark Few came on this show earlier this year, and we talked uh, quite a bit about, you know, Gonzaga as a brand and, you know, Few and his program. And I got the sense they were restless then. I think they're even more restless right now. But, Anna, I think you might be speaking from positive, your own experience. You're a high school senior all those years ago. <laughs> Gonzaga offered you a full ride. And Pepperdine offered you a full ride. And Stanford offered you a scholarship. It must have been nice. I did not have those scholarships in front of me. Uh, I didn't have the grades that you had. Um, but you went to visit Gonzaga, and then you went to Malibu. And guess where she goes to college, guys? She went to Pepperdine. <laughs> like, you know, you saw the snow, and then you saw the beach. I did. So you're talking about recruiting. You're just Why don't you just say, hey, I had a choice <laughs> And I got to tell you, it ain't California. <laughs> my my own narrow, myopic point of view. <laughs> I just don't know if they're going to be able to recruit. <laughs> Couldn't get me out of high school. I did visit Gonzaga on one of those really cold, snowy days. Uh, you know, came down to came, came down to Pepperdine and Gonzaga. Here's the funny thing. Like, you could have gone to Stanford. What the hell? Why didn't you go to Stanford? My parents couldn't afford it. You could have, yeah, but were you? Like, we would have been in debt. Was the scholarship not the same? No, no. It's a different deal. It was like you could have married somebody. Big. You could have married like the guy who invented Google or something. <laughs> you know, I, I settled for you. You got me instead. Sorry, <laughs> Pepperdine. At least you got to surf while you were in college. <laughs> Leave it here. You got the bald face truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750, the game. I got some uh, giveaways here. Who wants to go to the golf show? Okay, don't raise your hand. I'm going to tell you how to go to the golf show here momentarily. The, uh, Portland Golf Show is coming up March 3rd through the 5th at the Portland Expo Center. You can get tickets at portlandgolfshow.com. But uh, I want to give away a pair of tickets to the golf show. Uh, Let's go to uh, caller number 5 at 
503-417-7575. Caller 5 gets a pair of tickets to the Portland Golf Show at the Portland Expo Center, March 3rd through the 5th. Uh, we've been uh, we've broadcast live from that event several times. So if you want that pair of tickets, you can grab it now by calling in. Uh, Anna, while uh, Peter is buried in phone calls and Stephen is watching Peter uh, pull his hair out over there, uh, giving away a pair of tickets, um, let's talk about tickets. Did you call into radio stations as a kid to try to win tickets? Did you I ever, did. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you called in, and uh -huh. m was it like music stations? Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. Music yeah, stations. What were you trying to win? Uh, tickets to like the end of the summer party jam, which I probably wasn't even old enough to attend, frankly, or win the tickets to. <laughs> but the main thing that I would do calling in as a, um, you know, charming 12 and 13 year old yeah. would be a music station in town that would actually let you like, you call in and they'd say, okay, what's your message? And they would let you say a message to somebody on air. They would record it and then play it back like you you could dedicate songs Casey Kasem style to people yeah and uh, then you'd sit by your boombox with um, it on record and you would wait to hear your message played it was brilliant because you just listened to the radio all the time forever you were tuned in and uh, it was very exciting when you got to hear your own voice on air people who want to hear their own voice on this show can call in with a hot take on sports and then they can hear their voice in real time Yeah. if they choose to call in. Uh, so there you go. Uh, coming up, we're going to do the 5 at 5, top of the hour. We've already covered a number of things. And uh, what I haven't got to on the show sheet that I've been trying to get to is Robert Sarver, who the old owner of the Phoenix Suns, sold his team. He, uh, he got his share of $4 billion in the sale. He made a whole bunch of money. He was a terrible owner. And uh, quite likely a terrible human being. But Sarver gave all of the Phoenix Suns full-time employees $20,000 as part of the sale. So he rewarded the longtime hardworking employees by giving them twenty grand. Now, I think this is brilliant because he's, you know, to him, when you're selling a team, and I think his share of the proceeds was about $2.6 billion, Twenty grand is nothing to him, and there were like, you know, several hundred employees that got the twenty thousand dollar bonus. But a lot of people like me are talking about it, and then the employees that hated working for him or didn't like him or didn't like things that he said, now say, "Well, that was a hell of a parting gift that Robert Sarver gave his employees." Is it a smart thing for a billionaire owner to give the rank and file employees twenty grand as a parting gift, like a game show? It's kind of like a game show. You didn't win, but we got some parting gifts for you. Uh, and Sarver now rides off into the sunset, and what his employees are, are going to say about him is they're going to say, hey, he did a good thing on his way out. They're not going to talk about the fact that he said some horrible things and that the league forced him to, to uh, sell the team. So he's giving all the full-time employees $20,000, and he's donating $5 million to charity as part of the deal. Yeah, it doesn't fix it. You know, I think it makes it makes it a little more complicated, right? Because he's just trying to change the narrative. It, it does. It means that he doesn't get to go out in a blaze of infamy, of you know, 
sexist, racist, allegedly misogynistic comments. It's like, it's coupled now with, well, but he also gave a bunch of employees a, a ton of money on his way out. So it just complicates the storyline a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, I I think it, I think it's, I mean, this is not bad. I mean, I think there were employees that felt like they worked in a bad work environment. He's walking away with a whole bunch of money, and those who qualified for the bonus will get it in their next paycheck. They're saying 250 to 300 employees will get it. He's being called classy on his way out, and he wasn't called that when they were said, "Hey, you gotta, you gotta get rid of the team." So, Can you buy goodwill? Yes, for twenty thousand dollars, he did with three hundred people, because I think three hundred people are gonna go. Hey, at least, at least their impression of Sarver is conflicted, and at most, they're gonna say, "You know what? He wasn't that bad to work for." <laughs> I think you can buy some positive PR, and I think he did it. Coming up, the five at five. Anna's gonna tell us what she thinks the five most important stories in sports are, and I'm going to interrupt her between each of those. It's uh, sure to be exciting. Stay tuned. you got the bald-faced truth statewide on the BFT Radio Network. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. water do you drink in a typical day? Steven, I gotta know. Burning question. How much, water you, uh, how much water are you drinking in a day? Water? Um, yeah. Not a lot. <laughs> I like how you, you go, water? <laughs> I had, yeah, I had to think about it. Uh, yeah, not a lot. Why not? You, you came up in sports. The coaches tell you to hydrate. I just drink too much playing sports. That's why. I'm over it. No, I how much wa- Anna, how much water... In a day, are you drinking? Not enough. Supposed to drink 15 and a half cups. Yeah, I don't. Okay, I, I don't drink that much. That's what a man is supposed to drink. Well, they say a woman only needs 11 and a half cups. I don't know why. <laughs> why do you need less water? Generalizing. Uh, I like. I drink my water in the form of coffee, tea. It, yeah, but coffee. Does that <laughs> count? I got a coffee right now. <laughs> yeah. I don't think coffee counts. I know. I even buy you one of those bottles that tells you like how how much water you're drinking. It has times of the day on the side of the bottle. I'm supposed to keep up with that. Just one more thing to stress about. Oh, I'm behind on my water intake. I notice you don't you don't really care for it. I'll fill it in the morning. I'll hand it to you, and I'll find it discarded in the sink. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I think about that. It's is kinda, what you're communicating well, to me. It's kind of got. There's a nagging element to it. There's a bit of a, you know. I'm just trying to keep you alive. I may be walking around dehydrated, but at least you'll have some water in you. I know. I say this because Anna handed me a bottle of water in the commercial break, 20 ounces in this bottle of water. I'm supposed to drink this Chuck, Chuck. during this segment yeah. or what? Yeah. Peter, how much water are you drinking in a typical day? Oh, about 120 ounces. I'm good, man. Are you one of those people that carries around the giant water bottle, that giant one? It's not a giant one. It's basically, uh, I forget what these are called. Uh, what's this specific type of bottle called, Stephen? Like a hydro flask? Yeah, yeah. I just, I always have a hydro flask. It probably holds, you know, 30 ounces, and I'm just always refilling it. I, okay. I fill it like three times during the show. Yeah. 
Is that like really? You drink that much water? Like sometimes I'll yeah. look up and I'll go, I didn't have a drop of water <laughs> during the last three hours. Oh man, yeah. If I do that, it catches up to me really quick. Like once you get hydrated, your body will never let you get dehydrated without just feeling miserable. You can kind of adapt if you go long enough. You just mm-hmm. deal with it. Yeah, I can. Uh, I can attest because Peter, you know, during the break, I'm like, hey, I, I got to step out for a second, so he's always yeah. getting water to refill. <laughs> Or going to the bathroom. Well, both. yeah. yeah. Peter's like, I got to go. I don't know why I have to go seven times during the show. <laughs> you must have a healthy prostate. <laughs> but at least he waits till the break, I not do, during the you. show. You know? yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. No, but you know what I'm talking about? Those people with the giant, it's like a flex when you're in the gym or just in a normal setting and somebody walks in with like the two gallon size water bottle. It's intimidating. I'm like, I look at it and it's like, do you really drink all that in the course? of a day it's impressive is it a flex though i feel like it's more like we should be judging you for having that like you don't need that big a water bottle right it's a statement piece it really i feel like it's a statement like it's just like a power thing like hey look yeah. at this yeah yeah I yeah know. i drink I got my more pet water for the week already <laughs> big water You're, bottles it's like the guy in the gym who's got that milk jug yeah, a gallon milk jug, but yeah. it, he's got like antifreeze in it. Yes, it's got like a pink hue to it. Yeah, and he's just walking around there, like you know, yeah. I'm gonna be that guy someday. I'm gonna walk around, carry a jug of, you know, pink lemonade around there, <laughs> like I'm doing a service, walking around, making a lot of grunting in the gym, doing all that. Big chest. Big chest. Got to get that uh, going. All right, we're gonna do the five at five. Five biggest stories in sports. We do it every day. Right here in the happy hour. The five at five. And a number one story as you see it. What do you got? Myers Leonard back. NBA center signing a contract with the Milwaukee Bucks. This is almost two years after he had that whole uh, anti-Semitic slur thing during a video game live stream. He'll be joining the Bucks on a 10-day deal. This marks the first time that he's been on a roster since 2021. Uh, NBA launched an investigation after that offensive comment during Call of Duty led to a $50,000 fine and an additional suspension. But now he's got a chance to come back. It's interesting that um, you've got the Bucks part owner Mark Lazary involved in this. Um, you know, Myers Leonard's comments were anti-Semitic. And Lazary is Jewish. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of wonder if Lazary is extending the olive branch, so to speak, to show, hey, uh, I'm going to have grace here. and Or is he doing something that the rest of the Jewish community is going to frown upon? I think it's a really interesting study. I tend to think that Myers Leonard got judged in a way that other star players in the NBA would not have been judged and got punished in a way that we have seen. Like Kyrie Irving's just a great example. He's a better player than Myers Leonard. Uh, he said some horrific things and some offensive things, and nobody seemed to care. Um, Myers Leonard's getting a chance here. Well, he did spend his time away from basketball working with several Jewish organizations to fa- fight anti-Semitism. So he's done some work, saying he's learned a lot, hoping the people will allow him to bounce back from a mistake. Yeah, so I think there's some of this at at, at stake. So there you go. Uh, number two in the five at five. Go ahead. Uh, let's see. I think this is interesting. Maybe no one else will, but I'm going to do it. 
ex-Mets pitching coach Phil Regan. He's suing the Mets. He's filed a lawsuit against the team claiming that the only reason he was booted from that gig in New York four years ago was because he was too old. He's now 85 years old. He said he took over the interim pitching coach role in the middle of the 2019 season. He says in the suit that after he filled in for the pitching coach, Dave Island, who was fired, the team saw great results. That uh, their pitchers all improved. The team's ERA went down significantly. But he wasn't retained the following season. He claimed that he was not brought back solely because he was 82 years old at the time. He does look old in a uniform on the field. He looks It looks like Connie Mack is out there. But I understand that what he's getting at here because you got Tony La Russa managing in his late 70s. You got Connie Mack who, who literally managed in baseball till he was almost 88 years old. And so, you know, he loves the game. He wants to be around it. This, I blame the Mets here because I think there was a nice way to keep the pitching coach involved. But also, if they really do feel like they need to move in a more youthful direction, to do it without it ending up in court. I, d I think there's a way around this. It kind of tells me that there's a bigger problem with the Mets organization. And uh, Phil Reagan suing for age discrimination. I didn't have that on my bingo card. <laughs> Number three in the five at five. All right, sticking with baseball, uh, I was interested. There's a Washington baseball player, Will Simpson, who is kind of, uh, you know, encouraging the masses to chime in. He's saying that he was ejected, ejected for excessive celebration after hitting a home run. And he's questioning whether, you know, it really met the criteria for excessive celebration. As he's rounding third base, he kind of does the thing where he takes his hand and he puts it under the name of his team, yeah. Washington. And that's pretty much it. Like, then he gets to home base, and then he celebrates with this team. Okay, it's home plate. Okay. <laughs> but, like, I'm kind of with him on this. Like, I, I don't understand why baseball is so weird sometimes. Like, I think uh, I think there's there's a problem with baseball. I mean, obviously, people don't like that baseball's trying to come up with new rules and all this stuff. But I also think, like, you got to let young people have their fun. All right? So I don't mind an excessive celebration. The game will often police itself. But, you know, I don't think the other team, Santa Clara was the other team. I don't think they liked it that he came up the first baseline and he stared at the ball while he's still holding his bat. Then he flipped the bat before starting to round the bases. And if, it was, if the bat flip wasn't enough, it was the antics as, you know. <laughs> and he, he keeps the bat. All the way to first base. I didn't mind it. I I'm watching him right now at his trot. I don't have a problem with him. He's around second. He pointed to his Washington, came around third, and he got to home plate. What's the big deal? Oh, uh, I didn't I didn't have a problem with that at all. I had no problem with this. I've seen far worse. Right? I've seen far worse. He is uh like why is baseball doing this to itself? Yeah. Especially, like, he's... But this isn't baseball. This is, you know, an umpire. All right. I guess. I don't know. 
I don't where, know what they're. Where's yeah. the line though? Because I was at my son's game. He's eight. And okay. a kid made a shot. He turned around right into our team's face and screamed as loud as he could right in his face. Because that's what he sees on TV. He sees these guys getting each other's faces. So, like, at what point are we going to stop and say, well, we can't have too much showboating or, you know, taunting of the other team? Like, I get it. You got to be able to express yourself. But at some point, we got to say that's too much. I... I'm going to say what this Washington baseball player did does not meet the criteria for it. But I, I agree with you. I think on the youth level, if the coach isn't immediately calling timeout and yanking that kid out of the game and be like, you know, act like you made a shot before. But I, I think we're seeing it. Didn't you see it on All-Star Weekend all over the place? Wasn't it a problem there? Yeah, and that's my thing is like, especially for the younger group, like even in college, like they're going to do what the what they see the professionals do. Right. And so like it just it just trickle down effects. So like I understand that he probably shouldn't have got kicked out for what he did. But at the same time, it's a it's such a weird line to cross. Like at what point you have to you have to say that's too much taunting at some point. Fair point. I agree with the taunting part of it. And if it were my kid, how mad would you be at your kid for doing that? Oh, uh, furious. And my wife is the coach. She would for sure pull him out of the game. And uh, yeah, no, I'd let that happen. Number four on our five at five. Anna, go. We're trying to get our kids to celebrate. They don't know how. <laughs> uh, <laughs> seriously. All right. Sabrina Ionescu. This is pretty cool. Uh, thanks, Donna, on Twitter for always telling us about great stories. New York Liberty star Sabrina Ionescu just accomplished something that no women's basketball player has ever done. Her rookie card just became the most expensive WNBA card sold at auction. So her 2020 Panini Prism WNBA Black Gold Rookie Card, do we have that? Uh, made history Sunday night when it sold for $10,800. Reps for PWCC say it's the first time that a WNBA card has netted five figures on the block. It's one of the rarest UNESCO pieces ever made. Only five copies are in existence. That's awesome. Yeah. Good for her. That's not one of the ones that we played, I want right? to say good for her, but I guess I should be saying good forever sold the card. Right? It's not really her. Yeah. So it's not really a Sabrina story, is it? Okay. You know? Yeah. It's kind of. Yeah. But it's, it isn't really about Sabrina. Okay. It's just the card. Okay. It's about Joe McGee, <laughs> who went into the card shop and elbowed the kids away from the counter and <laughs> bought the pack. Yeah, we need to start collecting <laughs> cards, John. What are we doing? And then taunted and said, in your face, to a bunch of kids after he pulled the card. It's a curious way to look at it, right. okay? Moving on. Number five in the five at five. Uh, all right. I know I mentioned this earlier, but I'm going to do it again. 15-year-old uh, Anna Song of Los Angeles. <laughs> you told this story already. <laughs> to comb the Fortinet Girls Invitational Trophy at Stanford University with a score of five under par, 208. She uh, is the youngest champion of this West Coast All-Girls Invitational at 15 years old. Her quote, to compete in these American Junior Golf Association Invitationals is an incredible feeling. <laughs> Gotta love it. And that's Side note, your, she's my cousin. That's your cousin. <laughs> Won a golf tournament. You're proud of her. I'm really yeah, proud of her. You're really proud of her. All right, all right. right. Thanks for putting up with me. Uh, excessive celebration video. I'm tweeting it now. Um, but this happened, that excessive celebration happened, what is it, yesterday? Sunday? Saturday? 
Thursday? I don't know. It's still uh, wrapping my uh, wrapping my head around this, but uh, Will Simpson and the excessive celebration. Did your go- did your cousin celebrate the golf tournament? Did she run around and yell in your face to everybody? I bet she did not. <laughs> Because her dad would be all over her for that. Yeah. See, I think I think that's parenting. I took like, hey, Stephen, to your point, when the other player yells in the face of your kids, uh, you know, your kids' teammates or whatever. Yeah. Where's the parent? Where's the parent? She was sitting right behind me, um, because they stopped the game to kind of be like, hey, like you can't do that. And she goes, well, why are they stopping the game? And, of course, my dad chimes in. is like, well, that kid yelled in the other kid's face. You can't do that. And she's like, well, that's my son. And I thought something was going to pop off. But uh, it oh. luckily didn't. Hmm. She didn't. She didn't hmm. understand. She's like, well, he's just having fun. Like, yeah, he is. But he can't be screaming at people's faces. Yeah, you know what? After the game, he should have gone dunked on that kid and then taunted him. And the parent goes, what are you doing, old, your old guy? And then stole you a go, Sabrina card. I'm just having fun. It is so true, though. The kids are just emulating the grown-ups. Like, even when you see in the, uh, you know, Little League World Championships, it just cracks me up. Whenever children are interviewed in this, like, post-game kind (laughs) of chat, and they're saying all the buzzwords that they hear the grown-ups say, but it's coming out of the mouth of, like, a 12-year-old, it just, uh, I die laughing. Uh, We got a phone call here. David in Vancouver He's way out of order. We do What's Your Peeve on a Friday. Does he know? My peeve, David, is that people sometimes don't know the difference between Tuesday and Friday. What's your well, peeve? <laughs> I know it's Tuesday. Okay. So yesterday I get off work, just a normal day, you know, and driving home, it's like 3 o'clock, I turn it on, and it's normally like, it's Steven. It's like, it's 3 o'clock. And then he tells all the, the news. And it wasn't that. And then I'm listening. And bar- it wasn't you. Yeah, like, I, I had. It's none President's of Day. Work yesterday. Yeah, it's President's Day. I know. It's a holiday. It, I I felt like like my whole family was gone. I'm listening to like a guy from New York or yeah. Philly or wherever. He can't even pronounce Daniel Jones. That's job um, security you for me, listen David. To it. That, yes, that's exactly. How, yeah. <laughs> but you'd it, rather it have like, me working. I felt like Home Alone, like the yeah. movie all over again. I'm sorry, man. Really I'm sorry. I, you know, sometimes on these holidays, we go into national programming. Sometimes we don't. He couldn't hold that beef to Friday, and I don't blame him. I'm just he glad wants, he likes my updates. I'm just glad. I get, I'm glad I was missed. You know what I mean. <laughs> It's part of me that says, you know what, maybe I should have worked just for David. <laughs> President's Day, I don't, President's Day, i got to be honest, is it blasphemy if I say President's Day is not my favorite holiday? Well, yeah, because we got a day off, so it was it was a great day. <laughs> you know, but it's not my favorite holiday. You weren't out celebrating presidents? No, I don't wake up on President's Day and feel like I need to post on social media saying, you know, this is a, uh, yeah, this is, you know, me giving a shout out. To all of the leaders, you know, I guess it was originally Washington's birthday we were celebrating back as I, if I can remember that in grade school. Yep. Yeah, and then and then Lincoln got mixed in. Yeah, there, there was a whole bunch of piggybacking going on. Yeah. Well, what about me? What about <laughs> me? I'm a big Lincoln. I'm a big Lincoln guy. I'm I'm actually related to Abraham Lincoln. You are not. I am. Yeah. Yeah, I am. 
So I'm a big Lincoln guy. I can see it. Yeah. That's why I'm I can see it. <laughs> so what, what is the relation? Have you did, like, did you find out on Ancestry or something? You're in there, and all my, of a sudden, there you were? My grandma's done the work. She uh, she was doing this way before it became popular on Ancestry.com or whatever. Like, she's done a bunch of digging into it. Are and, you related to Mary Todd or, or, or uh, Honest think, Abe? I don't think so. I think just Honest Abe, my guy. So, but that was his wife, Mary. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I just, so, I just yeah, know. you know a lot about this guy. All, I, all, all I know to. is I'm related to him, and then my son's name is Lincoln. Coincidence. Oh. oh, did you do that on purpose? No, not really, but it just happened, and, you know, we, we thought it would make the family happy as well. So There you go. Yeah. Hey, little do you know, like, I look, he was he was tall. I think he was, was he the tallest president ever? He was like 6'4". <laughs> Had to be. He, he was really tall, yeah. This is, a, this is a segment we like to call... <laughs> Random questions. Things we didn't learn in U.S. history class. <laughs> things we need to Google before we ask the questions. Tallest U.S. president. I, I think it's going to be Lincoln at 6'4". Yeah, yeah, he was the tallest. Yeah, because my whole family on that side is really tall. And, like, I'm 6'2". My brother's, like, 6'1", 6'2". My dad's, like, 6'2". It's, we got that side. LBJ was 6'3 and a half. He comes in second. Uh-huh. Do you know who the shortest president all time was in history. Do you know? Raise your hand if you know. Peter looks like he knows. Uh, I don't. No, oh, Peter. Oh. I bet Anna knows. She's a geek like this. She's good in a trivia game. I don't Who's know. the shortest president? She could have gone to Stanford. She doesn't know that answer. Oh, I do. Yeah. Oh, he does know. <laughs> you got it written down somewhere? <laughs> I don't know. No, it just came to me. I'm sorry. I didn't realize my mic was on. <laughs> <laughs> well, who is it? Oh, oh, yeah. It's James Madison, isn't it? He was wow. five, five foot four. They called him Spud. Oh, Spud Madison. Spud Madison. It's not true. I made that part. Oh, he won geez. the dunk contest okay. in 1797. What's he going to do? I'm so gullible. What's James Madison going to do? Call in, complain? <laughs> I, I, was like, I got called Spud. I On President's Day of all days, you're offending these people? I was vicariously offended for him. Joe Biden, anybody know how tall Joe Biden is without looking it up? He's taller than you think. I'm going to go 5'11". I'm no, going to say 6'1 like and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Joe Biden, President Biden, is six feet tall. Oh, okay. Mm. Uh, President Obama was six one and a half. Bill, All those presidents Bill are Clinton, tall. Bill Clinton was six two and a half. Yeah, it's a running theme, and isn't it? President Trump says he was six three. Are these like sports heights mm. though, or are you add an inch or two? Do you like how I said says? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, um, I, I don't know. This, I don't know if this is like game program height or like did LBJ. Is he really like six one and a half? But he he went six three and a half, two twenty. Are they really the lining program? them up against the wall at the White House <laughs> and like you know marking down what height they are and then measuring it? I don't think yeah. so. <laughs> Andrew Jackson's like uh, you know if Kennedy says he's six one, I was six one. Anyway, out of order. If I ran for president, that'd be my <laughs> motto. Out of, I was out of order with my joke. Welcome to your president's <laughs> day after President's right. Day trivia. It should have gone. Kennedy said if Jackson says he was six one, then then era, I was six one as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Leave it here. You got the bald face truth. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on seven fifty the game. I like honoring President's Day. As much as anybody else that likes a three-day weekend, but I got to be honest. At the same time, I love my job. 
I love writing. It's probably uh, something I'll always do. Um, and I'm enjoying uh, having a lot of joy in writing at johnconzano.com. I'm 11 months into that endeavor, and I got to tell you how um, inspired I am. I guess it's inspired the right word. When I made the decision to go out on my own and go rogue and launch the independent endeavor known as johnconzano.com, I kind of wondered, um, because I had had it beat into my brain for years and years and years from a variety of different news outlets that people were reading the news outlet. They're not reading you. I mean, I, I kind of knew that they were reading me in the same way that I know that you're listening to this show. Um, but I also, you know, you have somebody tell you over and over, you know, hey, they're reading us. You just happen to be here. And to... Uh, to see the reader response and to have more people reading me than have ever read me, like it's not close, is incredibly inspiring. And I really do appreciate all the people who have grabbed a free subscription or a paid subscription at johnconzano.com. Um, I wake up every day, and there are even some days where I think I've written more, like with more frequency than I have ever written in my career. I'm writing almost every day, but I try to schedule in like, hey, Monday was President's Day, and I said I'm not going to write on President's Day. I got a lot of there's a lot of people off work and out of the rhythm anyway, and unless news breaks, I won't write. But I also kind of felt like I wasn't going to write last week a couple of days, and I said I'm going to take a day off this day or whatever. And then I just wake up, and I get, um, I get. Uh, you know, I get an idea in my head, and I go, i got to share this. And so I'm having fun with it is what I'm saying, and I, and I owe a lot of that to the readers. And I'll never forget, the day that we launched, I believe it was March 11th of last year, that was the day we launched johnconzano.com. I was in Vegas for the Pac-12 men's basketball tournament. I was doing this show from the tournament, and uh, we got the infrastructure set up. And I posted the first piece. It was kind of a piece on my grandfather. And then subsequently I wrote about Dana Altman and the Ducks being there at the tournament and getting excused from the Pac-12 tournament. And then it just kind of took on a life of its own as uh, I wrote more and more. And uh, subsequently in the summer, obviously it picked up with uh, the Pac-12 and the UCLA-USC stuff. And the college football season was amazing. And, and I got a chance to go do some things that I never would have been able to do. Like I got a chance to just pick great games and go see the great games and go chase the great stories and go to some different Pac-12 cities that I never would have been in and write things. But I'll never forget that first day, and I'll probably talk about this on the anniversary of it that's coming up here in a couple weeks, but Anna from the beginning was like, this is going to be the best decision of your career to you know basically believe in yourself and go do your thing and not have somebody telling you what to write or where to go, go do your thing. And I uh, I knew that, but the the real validation came the very first day that I posted the first thing that I wrote, and I said, "Here I am. I'm launching this thing," and I'll never forget it. We were walking through the casino in Vegas, and I was headed to the Pac-12 tournament, and I'm walking through the casino, and I looked at my phone, and my phone was lighting up because it was people who were signing up and subscribing, and I got to be honest with you, like, I got glassy eyes, and I got glassy eyes because I was like, you know what, 
I'm in a relationship now with the reader, like I am with you on this show, me talking with you and having a three-hour conversation every day. We're in, this, we're in this relationship that is, you know, there's nothing between us. And I like it that way. And I think that that's important. I want you to leave it here. you got the BFT statewide. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Appreciate everybody who makes this radio show part of their day. Um, you know, this Gonzaga thing, it's interesting. I just took a call during the commercial break uh, from a conference commissioner, not the Pac-12 conference, and conference commissioner asking me about Gonzaga. It's top of mind for a lot of people. When you Google, when you Google right now, Stephen, why don't we do a little research right now? Google Gonzaga and basketball and conference and see how many stories nationally pop up that have Gonzaga you know exploring an escape from the WCC I'm not saying they're gonna do it but it's evident to me that they're looking into it and uh, I do know that they are poking around on that front and I think it, it's making a lot of waves right now what do you see when you make that uh, you know when you make that Google search about Gonzaga yeah uh, not surprising Gonzaga to the big 12 question marks uh, is I don't really see any pac 12 stuff uh, that's popping up right here on the front here but uh, some big 12 stuff popping up for what, sure. what kind of what kind of media outlets are reporting that what are you uh, seeing this on is the... sports Illustrated right here okay you got sports Illustrated I know USA Today wrote about it mm-hmm. I think CBS Sports wrote about it uh, recently uh, John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group wrote about it, and I'm looking at a little different angle on it because I'm, you know, to me the question is, you know, Gonzaga's got this wonderful, cozy nest that they live in. They get to the, they get to the NCAA tournament, they get to the Final Four, they can get to the title game, they've proven they can do it in the WCC. Obviously, they want some more money. I think what they're probably exploring is they're going, look, we know we can get there from our conference, um, but what would it take financially for us to compete in the Big 12 or the Pac-12? And I kind of think the Pac-12 is only lukewarm on them based on what I am seeing and what I am feeling in the marketplace. Even the phone call that I took during the commercial break from a current conference commissioner, not George Klyovkov, who goes, hey, what do you know about Gonzaga? And because I just drop it in, I dropped it into the mailbag on Saturday, and I'm going, well, you tell me, does it make sense for them to leave the safety of the WCC? And this conference commissioner started talking about all of the investment you have to make when you are moving all of these sports programs to the Big 12 or the Pac-12. So... I think Gonzaga needs no-brainer money to do this, and I think that is the equation. At what point does it make sense for them? Because take a look at this. I, like, would you agree this is kind of a down year for Mark Few and Gonzaga this year? Like, they got beat by St. Mary's. You know, the, this isn't an undefeated team. Correct. No, yeah, I think uh, it's definitely a more of a down year for Gonzaga because they're not. I don't think they're the best team in the West Coast Conference. I told you this when you had Shantae Leggins on 
Like, I think St. Mary's is a better team than Gonzaga this year. So, yeah, I think they're definitely uh, a little down this year. Still really so, good. Still have a chance to win the whole thing, uh, but not as good as yeah. past years. All right, so what will their seed be in the NCAA tournament? I think they'll be like a four seed. Yeah, I was going to say four, three seed, something like that. Okay, so they're in a down year in the WCC, they're going to be a four seed. That's rock bottom. Like, And so how do you duplicate that? I don't think you can duplicate that in the Pac-12 unless the finances are there. It, and it makes a lot more sense in the Pac-12 than the Big 12, just from geography. But you need a lot of money to go to the Big 12 to have that make sense. But do you think they could be – I mean, I know Duke has sometimes had bad years that don't make the tournament, but they're having a down year. They're going to be like a seven seed. Like, could that be Gonzaga in the Pac-12? Could they be at that type of level where even if they have a bad year in the Pac-12, they could still be a seven seed? I think in this year's Pac-12, they'd be a top-four team. Even with even with a being, down year, yeah. Even with a down year. They're still a top-four team. And look, and I think when UCLA leaves the conference – I think if you're the Pac-12, that's the real incentive to add Gonzaga is if UCLA is out of the mix, you need another brand. Gonzaga is a brand more than anything. It's, you know, because the, there's a ton of NCAA tournament money that they bring in. I think when you look at the last five years, I think they've generated like $7.5 million in NCAA tournament money. That's not, it doesn't rise to the level of you going, hey, they're worth $30 million. Let's cut them in as a full partner on this media deal because it's not the same as football. But I feel like the work that's being done behind the scenes right now on behalf of Gonzaga is a lot of work with people kind of talking, starting, and it's infected this radio show. It's how effective it is. Starting to talk about the value of basketball in a media rights deal and how basketball is undervalued and how can you generate you know, more income. But by comparison, I can just tell you, like, the typical Pac-12 basketball game draws about 200,000 viewers okay, to watch uh, a Thursday night game between Oregon and Arizona State. 200, 250,000 may, may tune in to watch that game. It, it's, it's not a crazy number. But the average Gonzaga game, even though Gonzaga is playing a lot of late games, it's more than 600,000. So what is that worth? It's got to be worth something. It's not worth $30 million. You don't cut them in as a full partner. But I'm wondering what the number is there and whether or not the Pac-12 is allergic to that. So we'll have to keep an eye on that do, as Do you it unfolds. think that Gonzaga is in a position as well where they may have to leave the West Coast Conference just based on all the realignment stuff like that they'll get forgotten about and they need to make a move? Or are they kind of in the spot where they can pick and choose if they want to go to the Pac-12 or the Big 12? I think what they're probably doing is exploring at this point because it doesn't feel to me like um, it was – it doesn't feel like they have to go, but I think they're restless. That's the best way to put it. And I think Gonzaga's watched the Big Ten add UCLA and USC, and they've watched the Big 12, you know, expand and they're – they're, you know, they've got a conference that now will include BYU, and it will include Houston and Baylor. And I think Gonzaga's going, gosh, I feel like if we want to elevate our product, you know, we should at least explore this. I know Greg Sankey in the SEC has become close with Mark Few, the Gonzaga coach. I don't know how long Few's going to be there. He's 60. You know, I feel like he's probably got maybe uh, six or eight years before 
you know, he decides he doesn't want to coach anymore, but that's enough time where you still can be relevant. So I feel like Gonzaga's probably just kicking the tires at this point, but I think they need to know, like, hey, what's the number? Like, if the Pac-12 is going to invite us in, what's the number? If the Big 12 is going to invite us in, what's the number? So I kind of feel like right now, what if I'm Gonzaga, what I want is I want Brett Yormark, the Big 12 commissioner, to be interested, but I need another party to drive the price up because, you know, if the money's going to be right and all of these coaches are going to get raises in all of these sports to go play a Big 12 or a Pac-12 schedule, they're all going to get raises going to a Power 5 conference. You're going to have to come up with more money just to, you know, just to compete on that level. And so it's not just a basketball decision. So I think there's a number out there that makes sense for Gonzaga, and I think Gonzaga's trying to figure out if the money's there. And I don't, I'm not predicting they're going to leave the WCC, but I am predicting that in the next month we are going to hear a lot of talk about where Gonzaga fits and whether or not the Big 12 has offered them membership and whether or not the Pac-12 is a player on that front. I think for one, would like to see it because I think they fit in the Pac-12 conference. But I also don't want to destroy the WCC. And if Gonzaga is a tentpole, and they are in that conference, you know, that's a whole other conversation. All right. Peter Sampson and the Pulse are coming up top of the hour. Peter, what do you got in your show today? Uh, yeah, we already kind of hit on a little bit at the top of the show, but the travesty that was All-Star Weekend, I want to put a little bit of a spin on that. And, uh, our, our old buddy Nate McMillan lost his job, so some new candidates in Atlanta. Interesting. I saw the Nate McMillan thing. I, I thought, you know, when coaches get fired in the NBA, like a coach like Nate knows that if he wants to coach again, he could probably get a job pretty quickly. Like, if I, part of Terry Stotts being out of the game right now has to be Terry Stotts knowing that he got some money, and it's really hard. It's a grind to, to build a winner and coach, and you want the right opportunity to come along. But some of these guys get fired, and, you know, I, I kind of go, it's not a normal thing to get fired and get millions of dollars because they owe you several years on your contract. It's not, not the worst thing. I'm not crying for NBA coaches is what I'm saying at the end of it. But, uh, yeah, I look forward to hearing what your take is on the NBA All-Star Weekend. I'm just tired of players being in control of the league, and I don't think players have a clue what viewers and fans find interesting. I think the players are all about their own brands. I think it's LeBron, Inc. I think it's Kevin Durant, Inc. I think it's Kyrie, Inc. I think they're just interested in what is best for them and best for their brand. And at some point, that I think that causes an erosion to the league. Uh, Peter Sampson coming up uh, at 6 o'clock. We'll tell you more about the NBA All-Star Weekend. All right, I've got some parting thoughts next. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. Well, you can get a podcast of the show wherever you get a podcast. Just search for The Bald-Faced Truth. You want to uh, grab any of the interviews on this show or uh, share it with anybody else. Or if you uh, miss an episode of the show, uh, you know, I don't expect you to be here wire to wire all day, every day. But if you miss something, that's a great place to catch yourself up and get it. Uh, you know, I appreciate everybody who listens to the show and listens to the podcast. Um, Peter Sampson's coming up top of the hour. Uh, we have talked about great influences in coaches. I uh, told the story of Scott Keller 
the uh, great coach uh, that is doing some good things in Hillsboro and uh, has done some great things over the years in Hillsboro. And when you talk about, um, you know, Century basketball, Century High School basketball, it begins with Scott Keller's commitments to kids. And I just want to say again, if you missed the opening segment, if you're coaching and you're coaching youth sports or you're coaching uh, a organized team at the high school level, I don't care if it's cross-country, track and field, softball, basketball. I know they're paying you like 12 cents an hour to be out there, and you're doing it because you love to do it, and you probably love to invest in kids. And I want you to know that means a lot to me and a lot of our listeners, so thank you for that. We've talked a little bit about the Pac-12 Conference basketball season. Uh, the Pac-12 Conference tournaments for the men and the women are coming up in March. I do feel that this conference is going to have something to talk about on the media rights front right around the men's tournament, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. That's what we're uh, targeting, at least on this show. Kirk Schultz, the president at Washington State, told John Wilner in a piece that published today that he expects mid-March. I'm thinking right around March 10th, March 12th. You've got to have something to talk about or you're going to have some problems. Uh one thing that we haven't talked about on the show today is Alabama and how lost Alabama feels right now when it comes to their handling of a terribly tragic case where um, some Alabama basketball players have involvement and where, um, you know, capital murder charges have now been have been levied against um Alabama's freshman basketball star, Brandon Miller. Brandon Miller brought the gun that was used in the killing of a woman um, and and gave it to his teammate, known as Darius Miles, not that Darius Miles, but his former teammate, and another teammate named Michael Davis. Um, and a really troubling interview with Nate Oates, and I want to play the clip right here because I want to unpack this a little bit. This is what you don't say when you have a player that's involved in a capital murder who provided the gun. All right? Here's Nate Oates talking about uh, a criminal case that he doesn't really see as a big deal. Yeah, I mean, we've known the situation since... And we've been fully cooperating with law enforcement the entire time. I mean, it's the whole situation's sad. I mean, you just think of it. We team close practice with a prayer for the situation today. Again, knowing that we had this trial today, I mean, you think of Jamia and her family and Kane. Really think about her son Kane that was left behind. So it's sad. We did, we knew about that. I mean, you know, can't control everything anybody does. Outside of practice, nobody knew that was going to happen. College kids are out. Brandon hasn't been in any type of trouble, nor is he in any trouble, type of trouble on this case. It's like going on spot at the wrong time. So we'll, we'll address it when uh, I'm sure NBA scouts will ask they do their homework. But yeah, I don't even think the article that it came out it also stated Brandon's been interviewed. You know, they're comfortable with everything that happened there. All right, there's Nate Oates. 
He is stumbling and bumbling. He's the Ben's basketball coach at Alabama. He has now apologized. About an hour ago, he issued an apology statement saying that uh, his remarks were unfortunate. And he also said that um, he's tried to be thoughtful in his words, and his statement came across poorly. I think he's put himself in trouble here in a basketball program that has performed very well. But, you know, you've got prosecutors saying that another Alabama basketball player was at the scene of the shooting with his own vehicle. You've got, you know, prosecutors saying that um, that not only is a former Alabama basketball player charged with capital murder, that another player uh, texted uh, to a, you know, the, the, the guy that is accused of the murder texted another player to bring him his gun and later retrieved the weapon after that player arrived. So you have, you know, somebody accused of firing the shot that killed a 20-year-old woman. You got another player who was present. You got a third player who uh, apparently brought the gun to the scene or allegedly brought the gun to the scene. You, it, This is bad. And now you got a coach who sat in front of media and should have known better and should have been more empathetic towards the 20-year-old woman and her family instead of jumping to the defense of his player saying you can't control everything that anybody does outside of practice. And to that also, the woman uh, that did die, she was with another man at that point in the car, and he fired back and hit Brandon Miller's car. So Brandon Miller's car had you know been shot as well in the whole fiasco. I mean, the best player on the number one team in the country brought the murder weapon to the scene of a shooting. That's problematic. Coach should have a problem with that. Alabama should have a problem with that. This isn't done. This is just starting. It's out of touch. It's a bad look for Bama. And uh, I think even Alabama fans are upset over how this was all handled. Now there's stories coming out that are resurfacing that when, when this initially happened and the murder happened, Nate Oates was reaching out to people. He reached out to Ray Lewis as one of the people that he talked to, to how to deal with the situation with his team. Like, it, it's yeah. getting worse and worse. Getting bad. And I got to be honest, like, Alabama was celebrating having the number one team in the country. Now they got the scrutiny and eyes on them, not because they're the number one team, but because they are out of touch. The Nate Oates is out of touch for, with reality in what, what his comments were. And, it you know, it even... His apology, it means a little bit, but I only think he apologized because there was such intense public backlash after his original comments. This isn't done. Nate Oates issued a, an apology tonight. We'll see what happens in the coming days. Peter Sampson in the Pulse coming up top of the hour. I appreciate everybody who makes this show part of their day. We are back tomorrow. we got great guests coming up later in the week. We're going to talk about the future of the Trailblazers and more.